This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely positively need to make sure every surface is clean, bust out the cleaner with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. An innovative fermenter that's 100% made in the USA. No cleaning or sanitizing required. The Genesis fermenter from Brewcraft is all of that. Just place the sanitary inner liner in the Genesis, fill with your wort, and pitch your yeast. That's it. Not to mention you can't break it, it has built-in handles, and the opening is almost 6 inches wide. The Genesis Fermenter from Brewcraft USA is truly innovative and can be purchased anywhere Brewcraft USA products are sold. And by NicoBrew.com. NicoBrew.com is your one-stop hop shop where Nico and his kilt take care of all your hop needs with nitrogen flush mylar and only $5 to ship anywhere in the U.S. and with great international rates. If you're a pro brewer or homebrew shop owner, get a commercial account at pro.nicobrew.com to take full advantage of Nico and his guild. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote the best hobby there is, homebrewing. Join us today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, money-saving AHA member deals, and access to exclusive events and competitions. And remember, relax, don't worry, have a homebrew. Why Yeast Laboratories has provided fresh, premium liquid yeast cultures worldwide since 1986. Choose from our product collection of ale, lager, German wheat, Belgian ale, wine, malolactic, or wild and sour strains for your next fermentation creation. We're here to help you ferment premium products like the professional. Why yeast? And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and the newly released Homebrew All-Stars. Top 25 homebrewers share their recipes and secrets and tips. Between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. Now, I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with ways to check it out. Well, so on today's episode, we'll head to the pub to discuss more details about HomebrewCon, uh, the Brewing Association's historical efforts, a couple of other things that we found that are interesting. We'll take a quick swing by the library to discuss an article about Brett. Uh, and then it's off to the lab, where we're going to actually uh, skip from presenting some results and instead... This is going to be our all-New England IPA episode, and so today we're going to actually launch our first experiment about New England IPA, the hot, hip, hazy trend. 
Uh, and then our, in our interview segment, we're going to talk to John Hall of All About Beer. And finally, we're going to hit you up with another round of Ask Denny and Drew before we finally close out the show with our quick tip of the week. Now, we want you to remember, you can always support us on Patreon by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com, and clicking on the Patreon link. You can pledge any amount of money that works for you. But what is it we do with that money? Well, we don't just go out and buy sandwiches as much as we'd like to. We use that money to support our charity of choice. And uh, through June, that charity is called Freedom Service Dogs. They're a really, really highly rated organization that uh, trains rescue dogs to be service dogs for disabled veterans and other people. I mean, how can you not love an organization like that? So throw us a bone on Patreon, we'll pass it on to the pooches and help everybody out. Yeah, and as we approach the end of June, uh, we're winding down this first half of the year for the charity drive, and we are really happy to say, you know, we've we've made our initial goal, which was to get $250 out the door to Freedom Service Dogs. But we'd like to thank those patrons so far who have who have actually supported the cause. And when we get down to the final closure, we're going to read off everybody's name so you can get your little moment of, uh, you know, hey, that was me. But now now that we've made 250, we want to keep going to get even more. You know, help us get to 300 to you know 400. Hell, get, help us get to 500. Uh, all of it will go to Freedom Service Dogs, uh, and then uh, whatever whatever it is that's in the kitty by the end of June, that's what's going to the pups. After that. Uh, we're looking for our next charity cause. We have a couple suggestions, both from uh, Denny and I, which would be some animal things, and from a couple of the listeners. So why don't you help us decide? If you have uh, if you have suggestions, let us know at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. But in the meanwhile, don't forget, help us support the pooches. Yeah, please do. So it's, uh, it's a chit-chat time. What have you been up to this week? Well, I think uh, we've had the, the listener mail, so it's time to do the listener mail. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, first off, I wanted to read an email that came in from one of our listeners, uh, James Ferrier, who said, I wasn't in any way surprised by the olive oil piece, but what I was shocked about was the lack of oxygen in use by Denny and Marshall that came up at the end. I'm not sure I could talk myself into brewing without using it at this point. It's cool to hear that maybe I don't need to freak out so much about it if I have to run out, uh, if I run out halfway through adding O2 to a batch. Cheers, Jim. So, Danny, what do, you, what do you think about that? We had a couple of reactions to the no oxygen usage. Yeah, well, I mean, okay, so let's first differentiate between oxygenation and aeration. Uh, oxygenation, uh, I have done, and I didn't really see any point to it. Uh, both that and aeration uh, are theoretically good things to do for your beer, but let's remember why you're doing them. The reason the beer needs oxygen is because it uses that to synthesize the sterols that keep the cell walls flexible uh, and allow the cells to bud and reproduce more easily. Now, if you're pitching enough healthy yeast in the first place, there's really very little need for that to happen. Uh, so, you know, that's what I count on. I do get some aeration just because of the way I pump the word into my fermenter. But I think that uh, pragmatism and laziness have taught me there's uh, the theoretical best and there's what works just fine that isn't the theoretical best. And uh, that's kind of the way I direct my brewing. 
Yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, I, I also think oxygen is going to be more important as you go up in gravity, as you attempt to reuse yeast cakes. But yeah, if you go into the, your batch of beer with a healthy amount of healthy, viable yeast that you've treated well in the starter phase, I think you can get away with a, a lot of murder. Yeah, I mean, if I was making a 100-gravity barley wine or something like that, I would definitely be doing a lot more to oxygenate it or, or aerate it probably because I don't have an oxygen system. But when I am making your basic 1055, 1065, even 1075 ale, uh, I have just not found that it makes a whole heck of a lot of difference. There you go. And those are words of uh, Mr. 499 Batches of Beer on the Wall. That's right. 499 happened last week. I brewed two uh, back-to-back batches of German Pilsner because I wanted to check out this uh, stuff I'd run across at uh, at uh, CBC uh, but, called Brutan More on that B. later. More on that All later. Right. Uh, right. And uh, have we decided what batch 500 is going to be yet? Well, of course. It's going to be classic rye IPA, man. I'm going to make the original 1073 version of uh, my rye IPA recipe. It just seems like absolutely fitting and proper and uh, my wife's birthday party will be coming up uh, in mid-july and that beer was made uh, was conceptualized for that party and so i'm gonna be serving it there well there you go uh denny con bucking the trend of hey it's my super double extra hoppy bourbon barrel aged with brett rye ipa um well and i (laughs) And I, I just wanted to talk real quick about a couple of things I've uh, I've been up to. Uh, so I got a chance uh, earlier this week to attend a club meeting with the Hopheads out of Missouri, and I actually attended it via Skype, and I got to talk with them. I, sadly, I didn't get get to have any of their beer, but I did get to answer questions, and uh, they were kind enough to uh, treat me like a a person that they actually wanted to listen to. Uh, so that was that was great fun, and I I actually kind of look forward to doing some more of that kind of thing. Uh, so I'm not sure, Denny. Would you be game to do Skype sessions with homebrew clubs? Oh, of course, of course. I, you know, I'd love to do that. As a matter of fact, uh, my club is having Marshall Skype in in a couple months. There you so go. I'm, I'm way into that concept. Um, and in in that vein, I'll also mention here real quickly that uh, we it's fine with us if you listen to other podcasts. And uh, a couple that I'd like to recommend are. Uh, we were on uh, the Brewing Network recently, uh, and uh, you can go out and find that on their website. And just last week, uh, we talked to uh, James and Steve at Basic Brewing Radio. Had a blast doing that. So uh, there's a couple uh, couple podcasts out there with us on them that uh, aren't this that you can go listen to. Well, and yeah, and I was just on the Book Guys podcast out of uh, Canada and North Carolina and all that. So we'll make sure we have links to all those podcasts uh, in a row. But also, in addition to doing uh, Skypey type stuff, and by the way, if you would like to engage Denny and I in that sort of thing, uh, just uh, drop us a line. Usual emails, Denny at experimentalbrew.com, Drew at experimentalbrew.com, or podcast at experimentalbrew.com if you want to get both of us. Uh, but in addition to that, I also, business took me up to San Francisco uh, that same week, or actually, sorry, the week prior. And I got to, in addition to interview a future guest on the show got to go to the San Francisco Homebrewers Guild meeting and talked there, which was a lot of fun. And, you know, did the, you know, the usual sort of road show and gave some experimental results and talked to people about the whole thing and introduced them to the podcast and what we've been doing. And again, really great time. 
Uh, it's always fun hanging out with homebrewers. And in fact, a couple of the homebrewers shanghaied me out of the homebrew club meeting when it was done and took me around to San Francisco to a couple of different beer places, which made 8 a.m. the next morning fun. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, really. Um, but I did really want to give uh, a shout out to one thing that happened I thought was really, really cool was while I was there, uh, there was a gentleman who was hanging out to the side and he was listening to me talk and he had on, uh, you know, just some sports gear and he had a duffel bag on his shoulder and it was kind of like, oh, okay, hey, yeah, cool. And he came up to me afterwards because I was signing some books and selling some books off. And he introduced himself. His name was Klaus. And he said that he works for my fitness pal. Now, you remember a couple weeks back when, or a couple months back now, when I talked about the weight loss thing, I talked about how I used my fitness pal to help track my calories and help really drive my weight loss. And that was part of, part of the whole tips. And so he said, well, you know, I work for my fitness pal and we heard your podcast. We heard you talking about it and he is a home brewer. And he said, so I had to come by the meeting and while he was here, he, I brought you some gifts and he actually gave me some, uh, Under Armour, who's the company that owns my fitness pal. He gave me some of their swag. So I got a couple of nice workout shirts, a, the duffel bag and a couple of water bottles. So that was really nice. And I really appreciate it. And that made, uh, that made me feel really good. Sounds like payola to me, buddy. Yeah. Well, Hey, you know, that was the first time, uh, the, the first time anybody's ever given me payola for talking honestly about my weight loss. So I will take it. And there you go. <laughs> That's right. As you should. I, I'm, I'm an easy buy for sponsorship as long as I use it. That's right. So what do you think, man, about time to uh, head over to the pub and have a beer and talk about the beer life? Yeah. And I demand an IPA at the pub today because it's IPA day. All right. It's IPA day for you. We'll be right back with the beer life. Alrighty, Drew and I are sitting here at the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of Everywhere and Nowhere in Your Town, USA. We're having a couple beers and talking about the beer life. So uh, you were going to have an IPA today, Mr. Beecham. What are you drinking? I, I am drinking a relatively new thing, uh, Monkish IPA. Uh, Monkish is a brewing company down in Torrance, California, around the corner from me. That was fam famous for having a sign up in their brewery that said no IPAs. Uh, suddenly, they've released an IPA. Uh, and, of course, uh, true to form, it's uh, playful. Uh, the brewery itself is known mostly for doing uh, Belgian beers with sort of a, a, an Asian influence because uh, the owners are Vietnamese uh, and they're really great people. But they decided to do an IPA and uh, fitting with the theme of today's show, it's a East Coast yeasty IPA is how they've been uh, terming it. Oh, boy. And you, sir? Uh, me, I am drinking a brew of my own that I call Darth Vader, and that's going to take a little explanation. I uh, I got a sample of uh, a new product from uh, Candy Syrup Incorporated, their new D240 candy syrup for Belgian beers. I decided that I would uh, put it into a potter's beer, that is P-A-T-E-R, potter, and uh, make a dark potter's beer. So I was kegging it. I was thinking, okay, what can I call this beer? It's a dark potter's beer. 
Dark Father. Oh, Darth Vader. So there you go. That's uh, that's my geekiness. It's actually a darn good beer. It was made with uh, the Imperial Triple Double Yeast, uh, which I believe uh, to me tastes like the West Mall Yeast. And it's a really nice 5.5% beer with... Uh, Kind of like some chocolate and coffee notes from uh, from this D240, and uh, I just learned that uh, they will have this out in homebrewer size packages in the fall. So keep your eyes open for it. If you like the uh, D180 that they are making, you will flip over the D240. Is that the one where you got like a giant, enormous lifetime supply bucket of it? Well, it would have been a lifetime supply if I hadn't given away uh, three quarters of it. But yes, they they were kind enough to send me a 50-pound jug, and I still have, oh, probably 12, 15 pounds of it left, uh, including some for you if uh, if I ever get around uh, to sending it down to you. I was going to say, yeah, I mean, like, you know, you're giving it away to everybody except for your your freaking co-host yeah well Jeez. you know i'm i'm waiting for that package to come up from you so that i can uh, reciprocate <laughs> yeah 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 all right hey what are we doing what are yeah, we doing yeah, at the yeah, con yeah. what are we doing at the con con it's time to talk about the aha homebrew con in baltimore coming up uh it runs from uh, thursday june 9th through saturday june 11th there's lots and lots of stuff going on lots of great seminars Great trade show, of course, lots of great beer to drink. But we're going to be busy guys there. Uh, we're going to be speaking twice, giving our seminar called Brew Like an All-Star. Uh, once on Thursday afternoon at 2 p.m. and again on Saturday afternoon at 2 p.m. Uh, right after the Thursday session, we're going to be at the Craftmeister booth on the trade show floor from 3 to 4 p.m. doing a little meet and greet. Come on by, say hi, and check out all the great Craftmeister products. Uh, then on Friday, we will be at the Forum Meet and Greet, which will be in the social club area from 11.45 a.m. to 12.45 p.m. Uh, of course, we'll uh, have AHA forum members there, but uh, if you're a member of some online forum that isn't the AHA forum, feel free to stop by, use the space for your forum meet and greet, and say hi to everybody from other forums. Uh, right after that, we are off to the Brewcraft booth, where from 2 to 4 p.m. on Friday afternoon, we will be taping a live version of the podcast. It'll be an all-question-and-answer show, so drop on by the Brewcraft booth. That's uh, booth 800 through 806, uh, and see if you can stump us. Ask us some questions and uh, see, see if we can come up with a decent answer for you. And just in case that wasn't enough, on Thursday morning, before our seminar, we'll be doing a book signing at the Brewer's Publication booth from, I believe it's like 11 a.m. until noon. So uh, stop by there, say hi, pick up the books if you don't already have them, and check them out. Whew, man, I'm exhausted just thinking about that. Yeah, well, and hey, if you couldn't keep track of Denny because his voice started to make you uh, get a little sleepy uh you can always go to experimentalbrew.com and at the very top there is a link for where you can see us and we have the full schedule right there 
So uh, we will keep that up to date, hopefully, if we can remember to. Uh, but come find us. Come hang out with us. Uh, we like to share beer with people. Uh, be good people. That's all we ask. But you're homebrewers, so that's almost always the case. <laughs> so uh, I guess it's your turn uh, to talk about history. Yeah, yeah. so all right. Uh the one of those little known facts for me, uh, obviously, my day day life is I'm an engineer, but uh, when I was going back to decide about college, I had to choose between a couple of universities, and the primary thing I came down to was was I going to be an engineer or was I going to be a historian, which is actually one of my other big pieces of passion, and I chose an engineer because uh, basically that pays better, and I can teach myself history. I can't teach myself the engineering. And so what does this have to do with beer, Drew? Why are you talking about it in the pub? You jerk. Well, shush. Here's what it has to do with beer. During the CBC, uh, the Brewers Association, which is the parent association of the American Home Brewers Association, one of our sponsors of the podcast uh, and group that Danny and I both serve with, announced that they are granting or they produced a grant for the Smithsonian for the uh, Natural Museum of American History to do a to build up a brewer's archive for the recent craft beer movement so i love the smithsonian the smithsonian is one of those places where i'm fairly certain i could spend a couple of weeks in washington dc and never actually leave the smithsonian and be perfectly happy with it uh and so the museum as it exists right now does actually have a small seg- uh, segment of history on brewing but it's on what everybody would think of as brewing history, which is, you know, 18th century, Adolphus Bush and Rochester Brewing and blah, 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 you know, all these first guys who are, who are coming up in the, the big German influence. Now what they're, what the BA is actually given them money to do is to go prepare an archive and presentations on the rise of the craft beer movement and the stuff that, that you and me and everybody else really loves. So I think that's kind of cool because it's two of my hobbies coming together. <laughs> well lucky you i know it's cool i mean come on this is like artifacts and it's actually people paying attention to hey you know this is kind of a uh, an interesting movement maybe we should uh be proactive and try and preserve some of this history before it goes out the window unlike a lot of other things yeah. where a lot of this cool history just becomes ephemera that blows away right right well, speaking of history, a couple weeks ago, I was in a very historical place, uh, Philadelphia. I was uh, there for the Craft Brewers Conference, and uh, 13,000 brewers from all over the world. Uh, simultaneously, there was the judging for the World Beer Cup, uh, 6,500 entries in that. Uh, I didn't judge, and probably that's a good thing. Uh, but I did spend a lot of time on the trade show floor uh, at the Craft Brewers Conference. And, you know, I just, I don't know how I can get across how big this thing was. Uh, three gigantic halls. I mean, I'm not even sure you could see from one end to the other of each one because of the curvature of the earth, you know. Uh but there were there were people there with displays of about anything involved in the craft brewing, distilling, wine making world. Uh, of course, brewing systems. And let me tell you, 
it, it's a real trip to be walking through a trade show floor and see not one complete brew house set up, but dozens and dozens and dozens of them. That will give you a, an idea of how big these halls were that people could actually set up a 20, a 40, a 60 barrel brewing system in one of them and not, not be the only one there. But, I mean, there was there was every aspect of, of the business. There are people who make glasses, people who make signs, people who make additives for your beer, people who sell fruit that goes into your beer. Of course, you know, the yeast and grain and hops people. There were people who had water filtration systems. One of the more esoteric things I saw was a, a company that makes an app for your phone that lets you figure out the correct mixture of uh, CO2 and nitrogen for your beer gas. I mean, there was just anything that could possibly be involved in the brewing world there at this show. And it was, it was staggering. <laughs> you know, that's all I can say. Well, I mean, now I'm assuming as you were walking around here, you were looking at all this stuff going... Can I use this as homebrewing? Can I use this in homebrewing? Do you see anything that jumped out at you that uh, struck you as something that we could use in homebrewing? Leaving aside the obvious one that we'll talk about in a second. Well, yeah, right. And that was that was one of the few, because uh, it, it really is a commercially oriented show. Uh, I, I was there with uh, the great folks from Pico Brew. And, of course, they uh, they have a lot of stuff that's oriented towards home brewers. But also, there were many, many breweries who were interested in their equipment uh, for, you know, pilot batches, uh, for uh, making wort to propagate yeast. So, you know, there was nothing there specifically aimed at home brewers, but there were a few things there that, uh, that home brewers could take advantage of. There was also more beer than you can possibly imagine. There were beer stations probably every 20 feet. Uh, you just, you couldn't go anywhere without somebody uh, wanting to hand you a beer. Hmm. And did you have any beer that made you jump for joy? You know, um, there was, there was a sour cherry beer and I, I'm sorry, I can't remember who made it, but, uh, but BSG had a circular bar set up with, uh, 20 or 30 taps in it and as i uh, i walked by there uh juno Choi said would you like a beer and i said sure what do you suggest and he handed me this and it was really good but that's all i can remember of it i'm sorry it was early in the day <laughs> all right now let's talk about the the one that you uh that you did find that you're excited to be playing with and hopefully we can play some more with uh in terms of our listeners yeah, um, Joe Formonic was there. He's uh, one of the all-stars in our new book. And if you know, you may have heard Joe's name uh, in the past because he is a multi-award winning NHC medalist. Uh, Joe works for a Japanese company called Ajinomoto that uh, makes a number of food products and also brewery products. And... One of the things that they make is this uh, stuff called Brutan B that is a version of tannic acid. Now, don't freak out, you know, not all tannic acids are bad. And in fact, this one seems to be very good. The idea behind it is that it interferes with 
staling reactions in the beer so that even if you pick up oxygen in your beer, it won't react and, uh, and give you issues. And uh, it also promotes beer clearing and stability. Um, I, hope I, I hope I got all that information right, and we're going to have Joe on in a few weeks to actually talk about this. But the other day I brewed uh, two back-to-back batches of German pills, one using the Brutan B and one without it. And when those are done and I have a chance to evaluate them, send some down to Drew, like I said, we'll have Joe on to talk about it and, uh, and get the real info out there. This is something that has been used in the commercial brewing world quite extensively, I guess, and they're trying now to get into the craft brew world. And I'm hoping that... Uh, that I'm going to see a spectacular improvement in my beer, or even a minute improvement in my beer would be good, from using the Brutan B, and uh, who knows, maybe someday it'll be available for home brewers too. Yeah, and I, and I think, I suspect we're going to do some experimentation that are going to be all around this sort of new concern that's popping up in uh, home brewing worlds, uh, because there's a lot of discussion about it, and if you don't know what it is, then uh, just wait a few episodes, we'll talk about it. And Brutan may actually uh, play a role in it. It, it may, it may not. We'll see. Yeah, that's right. So, <laughs> has craft beer gone too far? Well, you know my feelings on that. Uh, but what, is, what does this article say? All right. So, Food and Wine in their online blog, they had a uh, blog post by a guy named uh, John Ray. And it says, has craft beer gone too far? And he goes through a whole series of uh, uh, of beers that he was trying ends up with a uh, rogues beard brew, which was the one that they brewed with yeast found in John Mayer's beard. Uh, and basically the whole point of the article was, uh, rubble, 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 beer flavored beer is best. Rubble, 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 rubble off my lawn, rubble, rubble, rubble. Or as I like to think, uh, Dennis Leary's, uh, you know, late nineties standup act when he was complaining about whatever happened to beer flavored beer. Um, you can guess my take on it. Uh, here's here's my reaction is, yes, I agree that there are times when a lot of the flavor things and compounds and beer ideas that people are coming up with seem absurd and silly and whatnot. And I am certainly guilty of that myself. I'm Chatter Saison. But yes. here's the thing I think these articles sort of ignore is that it is way, 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 way easier and more attention-grabbing to sit there and talk about, you know, Uncle Larry's Brewery's, you know, Rocky Mountain Oyster Stout aged in uh, red wine barrels than it is to talk about sort of the delicate interplay of toasty caramel and bready malts and a little bit of coffee tones in somebody's brand new brown ale. However, having said that, it's hard to talk about that but if you look at most brewery sales, the thing that is actually still the, that the things that are actually selling the most are not the you know wackadoodle you know crazy pants beer that catches everybody's attention. It's the brown ale. It's the IPA. It's the pale ale. I mean, actually, it's not the brown ale because virtually nobody's making brown ales anymore, which you know makes me sad. Uh, but it is the IPA. It is the flagship beers that you would expect. So. To me, this article is a whole bunch of uh, warbling about a bunch of nonsense. You know, part of the idea of craft beer, or at least part of the idea of brewing, to me, is 
to have some fun with it. You can sit there and you can complain all you want about uh, uh, about the strange beers and, and those ideas. But whatever. They're not hurting you. So shut up. Rant off. You know, man, I, I, don't, I don't know about that. Uh, I'm afraid that some of the totally wacky ones out there may be giving craft beer uh, an image of... I don't want to say flightiness because it is all about fun, uh, but an image of people really not caring and thinking about what they're doing. I have, I have no problem with beers with things added to. I mean, you know, I'm the guy who makes mushroom beers for God's sake, but it seems like there are a lot of beers showing up where you. My first reaction, at least, is. What were they thinking? Or were they thinking at all about that blend of flavors they put into them? So I'm, you know, I'm not opposed to, to out there ideas. But on the other hand, I want them to be out there ideas with some thought process behind them as to what the finished beer is going to be other than just a gimmick. Uh, for instance, I recently heard about a brewery that, that I will not name... Um, but these people made a beer with pizza and money in it. Now, can that be anything but a gimmick? No. And I will, I will totally back you up on the idea that I think that there are a lot of beers out there that have lazy gimmicky execution for the sake of being gimmicky. However, at the same time, those beers aren't that widespread. I mean... Seriously, your pizza and money beer, how, how much of that was brewed? You know, it's a, it is an attention-grabbing thing. In reality, all it does is it catches people's attention and it flashes away. The stuff that remains is the, is the stuff that everybody cares about. You know, and- right, but at the same time you're catching people's attention, what you're also doing is, to me, again, you know, I can only give you my opinion, but what this is saying to me is that these people don't really care about brewing good beer. They care about brewing beer that will get your money out of your pocket and into their hands. Uh, Now, I I realize that that is not a fair assessment and that this particular brewery does make a lot of really great beers. But still, I know that. If, If you didn't know that and you saw this pizza and money beer, would you be inclined to try anything else from that brewery? Yes, but I'm also strange. I mean, again, to me, I think it's it's publicity. It is what it is. Do I? It, does it actually? Does it bother me? No. But again, I'm clam chowder man. So, I I I do, I do wish that the ideas that people were putting out there, all of them were as thoughtfully and wonderfully executed as clam chowder or fluff and utter beer, but. Not every not everybody has that skill set, and I don't think ultimately it's that damaging because when you walk into a package store, when you walk into a craft beer bar, when you walk into places to go have something, you know most of what you're going to see is that you know it is the products that we all care about. I actually think more so than the pizza and money thing, the thing that's actually more damaging to uh, the craft beer movement is the lazy gimmicky part. Which is the, hey, I've oh, added yeah. grapefruit to my beer. I've added, yeah, and so now suddenly you see, oh, this is my IPA. This is my IPA with grapefruit. 
this is my IPA with jackfruit. This is my IPA with chilies. It's like that to me is actually more damaging because that actually has a farther and wider reaching impact. So, in other words, yeah. food and wine. I, I don't know. I, I would say that I, I would say that they're they're. Ha- I, I would agree with them fifty percent. You know. Yeah. Well. And it kind of sounds like both you and uh, food and wine can go blow it out your uh, your butts. Well, we'll just have to agree to disagree and agree that you're wrong again. So, <laughs> okay. You and my wife. <laughs> you and my wife. One of. Yeah. That's right. Well, see, it's the people who love you that know you the best, right? So um, our great sponsor, Y-Yeast, has uh, come up with a little perk for our Igors that we want to talk about. And uh, maybe maybe it will uh, incentivize some of you out there to join the Igor program and start doing some of the experiments. So uh, run it down, Drew. Just like breweries have seasonal products, so do our big yeast companies. And Y-Yeast is definitely a forerunner in this, and they've been doing their private collection uh, every three months, every quarter of the year. Uh, new strains, usually three, coming out. Now, we're not allowed to say what the new strains are. They're coming out in quarter three, but this is what's really cool. Y-Yeast, who is a sponsor of the program, has reached out to us and has said, Hey, look, here are the three new strains that are coming out in quarter three. What we would love to have happen is for your Igors to choose a strain, brew a beer with it, and put present some tasting notes. So what we're actually going to do is have our Igors choose a strain they're choosing right now actively uh, that we will get to them. And Yeast is actually special producing these packages ahead of time because they're not going to be commercially ready yet. And the Igors will get to brew them. We're going to ask them to do a tasting, uh, show us some pictures. Uh, and then uh, all that's going to go up on our website, and that will be a giant, uh, wonderful set of blog posts. Because of some of the strains that are involved here, these recipes may appear over time. Uh, so expect to see that uh, as a big collection of fun that's coming out of Yeast. But see, this is what's kind of cool about the Igor program, is this gives us a real way to not only do some brew science, but it also gives uh, us a way to have things get tested out that aren't just scientific. Like, here, let's try out these new yeast strains. Let's try out these new products. And so this is really a kind of uh, a wonderful thank you from one of our sponsors that we can extend out to the Igors. And to be clear, these are not just everybody who has signed up to be an Igor raised their hand and going, ooh, ooh, ooh I'll experiment, I'll experiment. Uh, but we are giving preference to the Igors who have already reported back results or are in, in process of reporting back results to us right now. So what this means is that if you're an Igor and you're helping us out, uh, there may be some free perks down the line for you. And uh, so we just really want to say uh, thanks, Yeast. This is going to be fun. Yeah, that was very, very kind of them to offer to do this. And I just want to reiterate Drew's point. Uh, it's not like you just sign up to be an Igor and you get the goodies. We expect you to work for them and uh, participate in the experiments and give us some results we can share with everybody. And in return for your time and effort, uh, we have various goodies that we want to start throwing out your way. So if you're interested in uh, being a beer scientist, sign up for the Igor program at experimentalbrew.com. Get involved, start doing some experiments, and we'll start sending out the swag to you. Yeah, and this is actually a really perfect time to get on board with the Igor program because our Igors are just now getting a whole brand new set of experiments that will take them through the rest of the year. So get in, uh, get in now, get in early, and be able to choose some, uh, from some really fun things that we have come down the pike. Yep. 
That's right. So, Okay, now that that's done, let's uh, head over to the library and talk about a cool article you yeah, found. Yeah, absolutely. Huh? All right, we'll be right back. Okay, we're sitting in the comfy chairs here in the library. We got a fire going in the fireplace, and Drew's going to talk about uh, a cool article he found about Brett. Yeah, so uh, excuse me while I light up my pipe here. It is a library after all. No, me um, too. So yeah, but uh, I've got a different yeah, pipe I, here I, in I, Oregon than you have. Yeah, I was going to say I suspect slightly different vegetation matter. Uh, all right, so now the point of the library, remember, uh, is we are digging up things that we have found uh, both on the web and on our bookshelves that we want to recommend to you as uh, good reading. They aren't necessarily always going to be like, ooh, hey, look, brand new discovery of something new and funky. Uh, but we thought, I ran across this article uh, about a week or so back, and I thought it was really, really cool and well worth sharing to you guys. Uh, it's from a blog called Counterbrew at counterbrew.blogspot.com. And they've been producing articles for a little while now and a lot of different information. But this one is titled The Actual Truth About Yeast, The Brett Episode, with Kevin Lane of Fermentus. Uh, Fermentus is the company responsible for a lot of the dry yeast products that we use. And so, uh, obviously, some really nice experts. Now, there's nothing in the article itself that I would say is like going to blow away your mind if you've been doing any sort of reading about Brett. But what this article is really 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 fantastic about is that it's taken a bunch of brett knowledge and sort of condensed it into one fairly accessible and easy to understand uh, article talking about uh, you know both the history of brett how it's related to saccharomyces you know what the different types of bread are uh, some of the flavors that get produced by them uh different things about uh, temperature impacts uh how, what it will ferment how it ferments it's just, uh, it's a really well laid out article with a lot of information that if you could read this and absorb it, you will be able to uh, really come off sounding like you know what the hell it is that you're talking about when you're talking about Brett. Uh, so really highly recommended. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a, it's a killer article. I have not read it in depth yet. I've kind of jumped around, skimmed it. It's it's overwhelming. Uh, and there's some, there's some great info there. We will put a link to it on our website so that you can find it easily. And with that, I think it's about time we mosey over to the lab and, uh, get down with our special feature this week, all about New England IPA, huh? There you go. All righty. We'll be right back with that. <laughs> We're sitting here in the lab, and it's time to talk about Northeast IPAs, a style that has uh, turned up in the last few years and seems to be getting more and more popular, characterized mainly by a, a very soft hop presence, but a very uh, forward hop presence, and a lot of haze. And there are a lot of people uh, with opinions on both sides of this, and believe it or not, we have opinions too, huh? Yeah, I was going to say, it's not like you have uh, not put up a whole article about your opinions and tasting. Right. And uh, just as a point of clarification, so you're saying Northeast IPA. I've always heard New England IPA. And I don't know, is it are they synonymous or are we just you know, talking past each other? Or 
what's going I, on there. I, I'm, I am using them interchangeably, to tell you the truth. So, uh, you know, if somebody else calls it something different, uh, yeah, I, I'm talking about the same beer, even though I give it a different name. So, yeah. you know, when I see NE, I think Northeast, maybe it's New England. Uh, does it really matter? No, except for, you know, apparently people love their nomenclature and, you know, want precise terms like juicy to be defined. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. In that case, I mean, you know, I'll go, I'll go with New England if that's the accepted nomenclature. All right. So first thing, first thing here uh, that really you notice about these beers uh, is the appearance of them. And there's a lot of different ideas about what causes that hazy appearance. Some people say it's the yeast. Some people say it's the huge amount of hops that are put into it. Some people say it's large additions of uh, chlorides that they use to get the soft flavor. Um, but uh, there's a Beer Advocate article that talked about one of their findings, right? Yeah. So, all right, let's first get it out of the way here. That the New England IPA is characterized by these sort of more moderate IPA gravities. A lot of hop flavor, but not as much on the hop bitterness. So the IBU levels are a little different uh, and uh, tend to be a lot of adjuncts. And the, yeah, they tend to be hazy. And sometimes the haze is all the way from uh, not very much haze to, holy crap, who poured a glass of gravy into my glass? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And so the speculation is a lot of people are saying, oh, you know, yeah, it's hops. It's a yeast interaction with the hop oils. It's this, it's that, it's the other. And then, of course, there are also a lot of people out there who are just like, uh, it's because brewers are being, you know, plain lazy. You know, whatever happened to the idea of filtration and cold crashing, la, 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 la. A lot of Gerard uh, type of sentiment. So, yeah, uh, on Beer Advocate, there was one user who went and broke out his trusty microscope because beer requires microscopes. Uh, and did a couple of uh, analysis, put, uh, put a couple of uh, beers under uh, under the glass. And went and take a, uh, took a look, and the first one was uh, uh, Conky Dong. Uh, God, I can't even remember where that's from. I think it's uh, Hoofhearted, uh, Hoofhearted uh, Brewing. And he also did Green, uh, which is one of the ones that you tasted. Right. And uh, the uh, the Conky Dong had a fair amount of both yeast and hot particles in the beer uh, under the scope, and you can totally see this. And this is from uh, uh, DJ Unk from minnesota on uh, beer advocate and you can see in the in the conky dong a lot of yeast and a lot of hop particles now the green on the other hand which i think you saw in your article you know is a fairly hazy beer uh mm -hmm. with sort of a very sticky uh, sticky sort of uh, mouthfeel um very little yeast mostly hop particles so uh that was kind of a nifty to see so it may be that what we're seeing here is a wide range of causes and maybe some of it does come down to the idea that some of these beers are just plain unsettled yeast but there might also be something that's going on with the hops yeah so. I, I don't think i don't think you can uh, rack it up to any one particular thing i think that uh, every brewery has their own way of going about it so I, I don't think you can necessarily say that it's the yeast in all of them that makes them hazy uh I think that it's uh, simply a case of there are a number of things that it could be, and uh, it could very well be different from brewery to brewery. It could be even a combination of things. Yeah, I was going to say, I think uh, you're going to have a fair amount of uh, synergistic effects, to use right. a big word. <laughs> 
So let's, you know, let's just briefly here talk about maybe like the historical differences between uh, East Coast and West Coast IPA. Uh, basically, East Coast IPA has always been pretty much heavily influenced by the uh, British style of IPA. It tends to be a little bit less hoppy, a little bit less bitter, uh, a little bit more malt forward. Uh, that's because a lot of the original brewing systems in New England uh, came from Alan Pugsley, who brought them over from Britain, or at least styled them on British systems and set them up and uh, brought over uh, yeast strains from Britain that, uh, that would make the same style of beers. When Anchor uh, started uh, kicking off the American style of IPA with, uh, with their Liberty, they went for uh, more of, of, a, of a clean, dry yeast, which is what they had been using already, and they started loading it up with uh, the then-new Cascade hops. And so we, we kind of transitioned from the um, kind of uh, malty, earthy style of British IPA to the drier, fruitier style of uh, American IPA in the West. Is, you think that's a, a reasonably good assessment? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I mean, yeah, there was in the earlier days, there were a lot more kind of caramel forward type uh, American IPAs that you find on the on the East Coast. I'm, I hesitate to say that they're really British influenced because they're sort of modern British IPA influence. But if you look at like the old school original IPAs, the old school original IPAs, at least that uh, Ron Pattinson and company have dug up the recipes for are almost West Coast in nature in terms of, you know, basically pale malt and hops. Without much, uh, without much else going on, um, so right. yeah, I mean, oh yeah, Those, they're kind of kind of very similar to like McEwen's uh, McEwen's IPA with more hops and more alcohol uh, was a, for a long time the perception of East Coast IPAs, uh, but of course naturally as the West Coast IPA thing kind of took hold, you know a lot of people oh East Coast IPAs aren't bitter enough blah 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 blah. And then finally, we started to get people to do analysis, and I don't know whether the breweries had shifted or whatnot, but it turns out that now a lot of those East Coast IPAs were just as bitter. They may have just uh, had a slightly different malt bill tweaking to them that, that gave less appearance of hops and less appearance of bitterness. So, right, right. And that's, yeah. and that's the traditional view. And now what we're seeing is the, the transition that's happened over time where you know, the West Coast style has become very dominant, where now everybody's like, you know, Strip all the malt out of there. No malt whatsoever. You know, as little flavor as possible from grain. All hop all the time. You know, big, bright bitterness and dankness is a, a prized attribute, etc., etc. Well, it seems like to me that these New England IPAs are very much a reaction to some of that. Where right. people, people have already been scaling back the number of IBUs that they've been putting in these beers. You know, trying to play with how do I extract more hop oils? How do I get more flavor? And this just seems to be taking that to the logical extreme of, okay, now that I've got all these really uh, sort of tropical, fruity, uh, very interesting, uh, very, very oil-rich hops that are coming out here, all the new ones, the citras and the uh, mosaics and the galaxies and all those, uh, how can I best express those and get as much of their flavor without necessarily getting all the bitterness that, that you would normally get? And so you start to see people playing around with like late hop additions and much heavier late hop additions. I just had a beer yesterday where there was zero hops in the kettle. 
Uh, they first word hopped it, and then everything else went into the Whirlpool. And it was a, a very nice IPA. Uh, hmm. So seeing that, and this just seems to be like, okay, great. Now what can we do to even further strip that out? And part of it seems to be the chloride thing. So normally when we talk about chloride versus sulfate, you know, sulfate uh, people always will put out there, oh, well, that accentuates the hop character. It increases the bite uh, of the hops. Chloride increases the perception of malt. So what people are now aiming for is instead with these New England IPAs is instead of going sulfate heavy like they have in the past with their IPAs, trying to push the ratios to one to one. So one to one chloride to sulfate. And the idea is kind of round off that bite that you get from the hops so you can put more hops in there so you can get even more hop oils so you can make the beer juicy. And let's let's make it clear right now that uh, the style is far from monolithic. Uh, when I when I put up my review of 10 uh, New England style IPAs that uh, were kindly sent to me, uh, I found that uh, you saw about half of them that were the stereotypical New England IPA with a lot of haze, a real thick mouthfeel, soft hop presence. But a number of the other of them were very much like uh, like West Coast IPAs, uh, crystal clear, a real bite to the hops and stuff like that. So just keep in mind that not all breweries in New England uh, make only the, the new hazy style of, of IPA. And one thing that goes along with hazy is the descriptor that uh, that is being used for a lot of these beers, which is juicy. Uh, I have to admit that that baffled me for a while. And uh, interestingly enough, I've gotten some comments online from people saying, well, you idiot, can't you understand what juicy is? It's like, well, you know, in relation to a beer, no, I, I really can't. Although after going through and tasting ten of these, I think that what I, I think that I understand what they're getting at. Uh, these beers have a very thick mouthfeel. There's a lot of particulate matter in the beers, and uh, the hop varieties used are extremely fruity. So it finally dawned on me that maybe I need to think of the descriptor juicy as uh, relating to, like, say, orange juice or something like that. So uh, I, I do now have an idea what juicy is. And uh, to all of you who have been giving me crap about my reviews, let me just say those are my subjective opinions, people. Opinions are neither right nor wrong. They are simply opinions. And you are welcome to your own. So neener, neener. Well, I was going to say, yeah, there, there were definitely uh, some people who were giving you crap online about it. And I have to admit, I thought it was fun. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't think it was so much fun because I find it I find it weird that people get so defensive about somebody else's opinion about a beer, you know. But, hey, you know, that's me. That's my opinion once again. Well, it's the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It, it is the Internet. And I guess I should know better and be prepared for that. So as we said that there are a number of uh, possible causes of the of the haze in the beer that uh, that gives these beers a, a lot of their mouthfeel. Uh, you know, like we said, the, it could be yeast in suspension. It could be hot particles in suspension. could be a high use of chloride. It could be uh, adjunct grains like uh, barley or oats. Uh, so what we are going to do is kind of take a look at some of the things that could possibly be contributing to this haze. 
and keeping in mind that it could very likely be no single thing, we're going to try and look at the various factors and uh, what what they might bring to that style of beer. And to that end, Drew has come up with a recipe we're going to be using to experiment with. Yeah, so in a little bit here, we're going to do a tasting uh, from a, a fellow on the internet called uh, named Jason Failer, uh, who sent us a couple of uh, beers that are actually right in line with our first experiment. The very first New England IPA experiment that we're going to do, and this will probably end up being a series, which is why I keep saying the first, is we're going to play around with the yeast. Uh, since everybody seems to think that there's a big yeast component to this uh, style and whether or not this actually works, uh, we're, we're going to take and ferment this one recipe with Y-Yeast 1056 and Y-Yeast 1318, which is one of the rumored strains that is used by uh, the folks behind uh, Hetty Topper, which is really the first of these New England IPAs that got a lot of attention from folks. And so, <clears throat> you know, you also sometimes will hear people talk about a Conan strain, uh, Conan coming directly out of the, the cans from uh, uh, Hetty Topper. And, you know, it, but we wanted to play around with 1318 because that's more commonly available and uh, it's something that we can reach out and really play with. And it does have a rumored uh, rumored lineage to these beers. So anyway, we're going to do our we're going to do our first one. So we're going to be using a recipe that I call Israel Bissell IB any IPA. Uh, <laughs> all right. OK, now that, that's going to take more explanation than my Darth Vader beer name. All right. Well, so my family name, uh, you know, you, you all know me as Drew Beecham, but my on my maternal side, the family name is Bissell. And uh, there's a point of contention in the Bissell family, which is about Israel Bissell and Paul Revere. Now, everybody knows Paul Revere went and warned everybody that the British were coming, the British were coming. But what a lot of people forget is that even though Paul Revere had a great publicist who managed to get a poem out there that, uh, you know, years later, <laughs> that made him super famous for his midnight ride, uh, yeah, Paul Revere got arrested in Cambridge. He never made it very far. So he basically could have warned the president of Harvard College. <laughs> in the meanwhile Israel Bissell received word that the British were coming and rode all the way from Waterford Mass to Philadelphia in one straight shot stopping along the way switching out horses warning everybody from Massachusetts to Philadelphia that the British were coming the British were coming meanwhile why didn't he why didn't he just take the train <laughs> well I mean look ticket prices back then were just insane and oh, the yeah, schedule was taken forever Right. Um, but no, so seriously, point of contention in my family is uh, Paul Revere gets all the fame for warning uh, Harvard College. Uh, my ancestor, on the other hand, gets nothing for making a six-day ride all the way down to Philadelphia. Those jerks, history. So here's my way of remembering him. <laughs> okay. All right. And so just real quick, the recipe itself, it's going to be plain Jane and following all the parameters that we can uh, that we can find for this sort of style, like most of the stuff that people agree on, has a heavy portion of flaked oats in it. Uh, has a whole bunch of very uh, oil oil forward hops, so mostly uh, Warrior for Bittering, Centennial, Citra, and Emerald Gold in various quantities at various times, including a fairly hefty dose in the dry hop stage. Uh, we're going to do the chloride uh, chloride treatment, get everybody to go one to one, and uh, really see what people get to do. And out of this first experiment, uh, the variable will be half of it will be fermented with Y yeast 56, the other half will be fermented with Y yeast 13 I'm looking forward to see what I have a question here. Mm -hmm. By using uh, heavy chloride water treatments and adjuncts, are we not skewing the experiment and and testing for more than the yeast? 
Well, no, because what uh, what I want to do is I want to say, okay, look, if I, I want to do this as a series, right? So is it just the yeast? Yeah, and so if we give it a New England IPA malt bill and hop bill and water build and just change out the yeast, do we see a change in the haze? If okay. we do, if we do another round and it's without the water, do we see a difference? And in another case, if we change up the hop bill, do we see a difference? So this will just be a series of steps where each time we do this, the recipe will change just slightly, but we'll still basically start as a base New England IPA. And then we can see which, which one has the, if any of them, if any single one of them has the major effect that we're expecting. Right. You know, I, I hate to admit it, but I think that maybe you're right. Yay! It happens. Yeah. All right. So do we get to open these beers now and uh, see what's going on? Yeah, I think we ought to. So again, uh, Jason Failor, uh from BA, he sent us uh, a couple of beers. He's been doing triangle tests uh, all over the place with people. And I think you ran into somebody in Philadelphia that had this, right? Yeah, and I'm, you know, if you're listening out there, I'm sorry, I cannot remember your name, but it had been a long day at the Craft Brewers Conference. But yeah, as I was walking into my hotel uh, in Philadelphia, going through the lobby, a gentleman came up to me and uh, said that uh, he had uh, received some beers from Jason also and held a blind tasting, and everybody guessed every time which was which. So uh, pretty cool. So, okay, so here goes. Mm-hmm. It's always nice to hear bottles. Beer number A. Um, but oh yeah, my so God. J- well, in Jason's <laughs> Jason's recipe, he did the he did the basically the same thing that we're doing. Thirteen eighteen versus ten fifty six. He he made a malt bill and a hot bill that was, in his words, uh, more uh, more of a hybrid between a New England IPA and a West Coast IPA. So this isn't. Quite I can in I the can smell category, the fruit, but, man. The glass is sitting two feet away from me, and I can smell the fruit in it. Mm-hmm. So, so now, so by, all... by the way, I do want I do want to point out to the listeners we are not doing a triangle test here, uh, mostly because uh, I have no way we have no way right now to coordinate our blinds. So we're well, going to have to. Also, in this particular case, there's really no reason to do a triangle test. We just want to see which beer is hazier, right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I would I mean, say, with without a doubt, the thirteen eighteen beer has a grayish haze to it and mm-hmm. the 1056 beer I would say is clear and just short of brilliant. Yeah, and and also very di- uh, very different in terms of color for for my thing uh where yeah, the 1318 is deeply hazy. The 1056 is clear but also comes off with that sort of uh copper sort of color as opposed to the sort of hazy lemon yellow. You know, and I'm I'm kind of baffled here, which I know you know is nothing new, uh, but I have used 1318 in the past. It makes a great mild, um, and I have never noticed that haze before. Uh, that's very interesting. I wonder if there's something else going on. Well, I mean, again, there's the there's all the things that people are talking about where there's some sort of uh, bioreaction between uh, the yeast and the hops. In this particular case, uh, Jason's hop bill, like I said, was uh, very much sort of in that West Coast New England IPA area, and he didn't go for the super heavy oil hops like the Galaxies and the Mosaics. His was uh, a bittered with Columbus and then had a mix of Centennial, Citra, and Amarillo uh, mm-hmm. at both 15 minutes and at knockout. 
but he didn't do any Whirlpool editions. That Citra and Amarillo aroma is really coming out in this beer. So, Okay, so I guess it's time to taste. I'm going to start with the 1318 beer because mm-hmm. it looks so disgusting. I want to get it over with. <laughs> well, I mean, here's the thing. Uh, soft mouthfeel, definitely a okay. fair amount of bitterness. Um, yeah. uh, kind of a there, minerally the, aftertaste. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay. And there's no, a, I mean, a big, I mean, definitely big lots bright. of fruit in there. Holy cow, man. I can taste those citra. Yeah. I mean, and what's interesting to me though, is the citra in this case, I usually tend to think of citrus coming off very tropical fruit. So a lot of uh, mango and pineapple. And here, what I'm getting more is uh, sort of very bright, clean, orangey. And I'm wondering, I'm if getting that's a lot of a, orange, a, but I am definitely getting a lot of mango out of it too. You know, uh, that, see now I get, ma- but I get more. I'm I'm also smelling and tasting the 1056 version. Mm-hmm. And with the 1056 version, I get more of uh, the pine aroma, but I also do get more of the mango. See, and for me, it's it's the other way around. I get much more mango out of the 1318. The aftertaste, especially. For me, is pure mango. The 1056 beer is definitely, I want to say cleaner. That may not be the right word. It, it, it definitely is, is more straight ahead, and the hop flavors seem to be a little bit more focused. And I'm not saying that in a way to imply that focused is preferential. It's just a description. Whereas in the 1318 beer, the hop flavors are maybe more diffused and blended together. Does that make mm-hmm. any sense? Yeah. I mean, hey, I, I want all of you out there now to take note of that. Drew just said I made sense. Well, no, I, I, I said what you said made sense. Not uh, well, anything you know, about your state. You know what they say um, about blind squirrels. Yep. Um, <laughs> but no, so... It is definitely interesting to me that I mean there is there is a a major perceivable difference between these two, uh, beyond just the visual, mm-hmm. and I and to me, it's not even a, a perceivable dis- difference because of esters or something from the yeast. Yeah, we no. are we are definitely getting a different hop presentation between these. Yeah, two. I would I would say that the yeast definitely had an effect on the hop character. Uh, mm-hmm. in these in these two beers and that of the two of them the beer with 1318 is a lot closer to the uh to the beers i tried and wrote about mm-hmm. so okay now, now so, let me and let me ask do you have a do you have a overall preference between these two yeah i prefer the 1056 beer okay so because, and and well you you well, like that clarity you like that sort of bright bright hoppy thing uh, yeah well, you know, and, and as I keep trying to point out to people online who say, well, it's you old fogies who like clear beers, the the aesthetics of the clarity are a, a minor point to me. Sure, I like that. But, you know, I, I have made and drunk lots of hazy beers in my time. What I oftentimes object to about the haziest ones is that there's almost a gritty kind of mouthfeel that comes with them mm-hmm. from the, the particles still in, in suspension. And I also feel that, like I said, the, the hop flavors in the, in the 1318 beer are more diffused and muted, where I feel like the hop flavors in the 1056 beer are, are more focused and in your face. And well, 
you know, there's, there's, I, I, neither one, that's not meant to be a value judgment on either one. Mm-hmm. There, there's room for both things in the world because people like different things. It would be boring if there was only one kind of beer. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and what I, what I'm noticing is the difference between the hop characters is the 1056 presents with a much more traditional, you know, sort of hop bite, hop slap, you know, mm-hmm. right across the tongue. The 13, uh, 1318 version, I guess to your point about being muted, and I know some people took you to task for that, like, oh, God, you're insane. Um, the muting to me is it's it's muted down the bite. It's muted down that sort of, you know, aggressive rasp that we tend to think of with IPA. Mm-hmm. Uh, and instead is presenting a lot more of the, the hop flavor, the, the hop oils. So... I guess, you know, one other way to think of the muting is that what you're getting is an impact to that, that bite from the hops and mm-hmm. not so much from the, uh, not so much from the oils. Although like with the Timothy six, I, I get much more of that bitter orange peel flavor, you know, like those yeah, big, right. those, those big oil, uh, sort of almost numbing effects from, uh, uh orange pith. Boy, it's amazing too, because I haven't, uh, now I had a sip of one of these beers for a few minutes, and I still just have nothing but the flavor of mango in my mouth. Uh, so well, it's anyway, co- it's, Jason, coming, it's coming out. It's coming out as it's uh, as it's warming up in my glass. My my first one may have been too cold. Yeah, and I've had my bottles out for a while. So, anyway, we want to thank Jason for uh, going to the trouble of brewing these beers and sending them to us to try. And I think that. Uh, you know, it's been a great learning experience and uh, a, a great first step on our journey of figuring out uh, what goes into making a New England IPA, a New England IPA. Yeah, well, and I will also reiterate, uh, Denny and I are always happy to accept beer. We, we will take beer and we will do exactly <laughs> this sort of thing. And in um, the future, if you want if you want to have this sort of uh, interactive tasting happening online, uh, or you have a beer that you have questions about, uh, feel free to reach out to us. Uh, we're more than happy to uh, have your beer on the show, talk about it, uh, and uh, maybe also get you online so we can uh, talk to you about it and right. uh, help people figure out what's going on. That's right. Okay, so that was round one of the New England IPA test. We'll uh, have more of that coming up on future shows. And in just a minute, we will be right back with a killer interview with John Hall from All About Beer magazine. Indeed. And hey, get your IPA on, people. All right, it's time for our interview this week. Uh, Drew was recently over on the East Coast and had a chance to talk to a fascinating gentleman by the name of John Hall. Yeah, so uh, John Hall, who uh, may or may not be a name that uh, you know. You probably know him better if you uh, pay attention to the written word stuff about beer. But uh, John is the editor-in-chief of All About Beer, which is America's classic tome about the good beer movement. It's been around since the... Uh, 70s, uh, late 70s, and uh, has really been there since the beginning of this whole thing, uh, covering the whole craft beer scene. 
In fact, I think at one point in the interview, if I remember correctly, we talk about a, a young upstart magazine called Zymergy appearing and all about beer covering that. John is also the author of several uh, cookbooks and beer books. Uh, I think probably the best the best one that people will know him for is the American Craft Beer Cookbook uh, that he did, along with a whole host of brewery guides to a whole bunch of different states uh, and also worked on the Oxford Companion to Beer. Uh, John is also uh, formerly of the New York Times and a couple of other big papers and, and organizations that you'll have heard of. And nowadays he runs uh, all about beer and kind of keeps a tight editorial control over that thing. Uh, as really kind of revamped and updated the magazine to bring it into sort of the modern era. So as Denny alluded to, I was in uh, New Jersey on the East Coast recently, and I got a chance to sit down with John at the Departed Souls Brewing Company, Jersey City, New Jersey's only brewery. Uh, we had a couple of beers and we had a nice long chat. Uh, hopefully you guys will find some uh, useful information in here. And particularly, uh, I would say John has a uh, an aggressively unique take on the American beer scene. <laughs> what do you think, Denny? Yeah, I, I think I think that he has uh, some fascinating opinions, and I agree with a whole lot of them. So uh, let's just uh, sit back and let John speak for himself. Uh, here's the interview. Hi, everybody. This is Drew at Departed Souls Brewing Company in Jersey City, Jersey. Uh, Jersey City's first brewery, right? Yeah, yeah since Prohibition, yeah. So there you go. So big change of pace, and we're in a, a funky little space, and you can smell the hops and the grain going on. Uh, which is always nice, and of course you can hear the hum of the refrigerator in the background. <laughs> Whatever, it's a brewery. Ambient noise. Right. And I'm sitting here with John Hall, who, uh, well, John, why don't you introduce yourself to everybody who doesn't know who you are. Uh, I founded Goose Island back in the 19... No, uh, I am the editor of All About Beer magazine and the author of the American Craft Beer Cookbook. Uh, All About Beer magazine being the full-time day job and America's oldest and best-selling beer magazine since 1979. Well, I was going to say, uh, so one of my side hobbies is I do beer history stuff for, like, the Falcons. You know, yeah. I called the Maltese Falcons. And going back and dig into the old newsletters that we have, and I have electronic scans of newsletters all the way back to 1976. Yeah. And, yeah, you can see in, like, 78, 79, oh, hey, there's this new magazine that's coming up on the uh, on the East Coast called All About Beer. You know, make sure you subscribe to it over here. And, and oh, and, and there's this new one coming out of Colorado called Zymergy. And, yeah. <laughs> Um, actually, I think All About was founded in California, though. That's oh, the interesting thing. So it's uh, it moved to Durham, North Carolina right. in uh, the the mid early to mid nineties. I should probably know my magazine's history a little bit better. Um, and uh, but yeah, right. our, our second issue in nineteen seventy nine has this almost blind item that's tucked away uh, somewhere towards the back, saying uh, we've heard of a new steam brewery in Chino, California. Called called Sierra Nevada <laughs> will let you know uh, as it develops. And so I, I like to say, like, we were there first. We didn't get it right, but we were there first. It wasn't a steam brewery, and it certainly wasn't Chino. It was Chico. But yeah. since then, we've we've covered Sierra Nevada pretty well. Yeah, wrong, um, part, the wrong part of the state, slightly different prison population. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty much. Um, but yeah, it, I mean, it's it's a cool thing when we get to look back through our archives and see, you know, the first references of like Sam Calagione, or first references of Jim Cook, or you know, all of these other things that have come along. Uh, you know, even going back to Vinnie Trulers, those early days uh, before Russian River, and you know, all of these brewers who are household names now. Uh, 
pretty much got their debut in the magazine uh, early on, and it's just fun to sort of look through uh, to see how far the industry has is progressed. Well, and, and I also think it's interesting because uh, we were talking about it a little bit earlier. Yeah. With the, this first blind item, it's like going, "Hey, look! Rumors and gear reporting—they've been around forever." Yeah, yeah. We've uh, we, we've moved beyond that, though. It's we we publish fact and we try to get things right uh, when when we go in there. It's uh, uh, I'll leave the rumors to everybody else. We'll we'll deal in the in the actual truth. It's beer journalism, people. It's serious business. <laughs> it's no, you know what though? It's journalism. I, I don't even look at it as beer journalism. I mean, I come from a from a newspaper background, and I take what we do seriously. It just so happens that uh, we cover beer now, but it's it is a serious business for a lot of people. It's a livelihood for a lot of people. It's a big passion for a lot of people. Um, and I, I, I don't want to get on like the journalism soapbox too much, but it. I don't care if you're covering a state house or if you're covering uh, police corruption or you're covering environmental disasters or you're covering beer, you should apply the tenets of journalism, which is to find the story, tell the story accurately, uh, present as many signs that are available out there so people can actually have an informed opinion afterwards. Uh, and that's what we've tried to do with the magazine in the last couple of years um, since uh, I, I started as editor and John Page started as managing editor. And I think... I think we're doing an okay job at it. I mean, there's there's a, a longer way to go, but uh, uh, I'm I'm fairly proud of the product we're putting out these days. Well, I was gonna say, yeah, and, and I have a copy in front of me, but you know, I've also picked it up, you know, over on the West Coast as well. And yeah, I mean, it's always been a very well presented magazine, and like the scene, like the earlier versions of it, like when. In those very first issues, they were just barely above a mimeograph fanzine. Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, we on the very first cover of the magazine, we had uh, Paul Newman on the cover. So back in '79, Paul Newman was on the cover because he did Formula One racing and he was on the Budweiser racing team. And so the the very first picture on the cover is Paul Newman in a. Budweiser branded racing suit and that was our touchstone to beer uh, through that which was not even remotely beer related but it might have sold a couple on the newsstands because uh, Paul Newman was fairly popular and still is uh, to this day and uh, uh, yeah we've, we've sort of moved on beyond that we had Rodney Dangerfield on the cover at one point early on we had Arnold Schwarzenegger on the cover early on because he was some Austrian beer was paying him to be a, a spokesman or something so it's, we've we, we've changed our tone as the beer industry has grown up. So have we. You've never had Kathy Ireland on the cover. We have not, but you know, Zymergy did a really that was uh, that was pretty sweet. That was a coup. That was a coup for them. Uh, we did have a dog and a neckerchief on the cover once, though, back in like two thousand one. That was uh, kind of a low point, but you know. <laughs> Somebody's golden retriever uh, on the cover, yeah. Well, and, and for the listeners who don't know, I think it was in 1987, there's an issue that's jokingly referred to as the Zymergy swimsuit issue, because it has Kathy Ireland with a carboy of beer on a beach. It's... Uh, it, I, I have a copy. You know, uh, the teenager in me still, you know, still can't throw that away. No. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, it's funny, because, I mean, apparently she did homebrew, so... Right. It, it, like awesomely, actually accurate and funny at the same time. Absolutely, yeah. All right, uh, yeah. <laughs> Before we go down this rabbit hole, all right. So now, since we're in Jersey, I, mean, yes. I, I know you have a, a, a broad lexicon here, but I'm going to ask you one of my favorite questions, which is, what is your favorite curse word? Uh, so I, I have I have two. I use mother 
Cocker a lot. Um, but I'm also a fan of dickhole. If I'm really pissed off, I'll just call somebody a dickhole. And I don't know where it came from. I don't know why I use it. Um, but if I'm, but if 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 I ever refer to you as a person who's listening to this as that, it means I really don't like you. Um, so, and you probably won't hear me say it because you know I'll I'll say it behind your back. Um, but yeah, no, dickhole is probably my favorite curse word. Uh, but I use mother quite a bit. There, just as a nice salting across the top of my <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, but I like them all. It's good. well. I was gonna say you live in Jersey. I mean, they're basically every other word, right? Can I write it? Is yeah. You know, Jersey gets a bad rap. I think you know we're we're a lot more uh, even keeled than people will allow us uh, uh, to to be in their minds. Um, but I think we definitely have tempers. I think we definitely uh, like to to sprinkle in colorful language uh, as as we go. Um, we were saying before, I think before we went on, uh, I travel a lot and I definitely have to tamper it down some, like when I'm traveling some places. So if I'm in the, you know, the Plain States or um, I was in Indianapolis last week and uh, I, I realized that I was doing a, an interview and I kept saying a lot and the guy flinched every time that I said it. I was like, oh yeah, I probably shouldn't do that, huh? And uh, <laughs> so yeah. Well. I don't know, like, I know that when I went to, when I go around the country as well, like, I have to be careful. But it's not so much about swearing for me, it's, I have to learn to slow down. I have to learn to slow down, I have to learn to enunciate, because I'm a southerner who spent a lot of time in New England. Yeah. So I get a drawl with a, with a fast pace of speech, and I mumble. So I have to learn to do that. I do have to learn to remove some of the more colorful aspects of language. Well, you know, it's interesting, though, that you're asking me about curse words because we've been having this conversation in the magazine uh, recently because it is part of the way that most people speak or a lot of people speak these days. And we've had questions as to whether or not those words belong in print. Mm -hmm. You know, I spent many years working at the New York Times where those words won't make it in print. Um, The New Yorker has actually started using words like mother somebody is saying it in a quote and so we followed suit with that and in a recent article I think it's in this issue actually that you have in front of you uh, Daniel Hardis wrote a story about protest beers and basically brewers using uh, their beers to protest social injustices that they see and one of the words are are five rabbit out in Chicago did a beer yeah yeah your hair um, and we we use the word your hair in there and then the kicker quote of the story has somebody using the word butt hurt and <laughs> we debated it and we just decided that these are the way that people speak these days and we're not going to arbitrarily throw in motherfuckers or heads or things like that but if people are saying it and it accurately represents and adds to the story we're not going to censor it we're not going to keep it out and I think the worst thing that you can do in journalism uh, is not the worst thing but uh, one of the things is you know the dash 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 or using symbols to simulate the word or something like that I, I, I feel like that's sort of like an eight-year-old giggling uh, behind the couch somewhere after hearing somebody swear and if you're gonna say say shit and print it and so I'm not saying we do it in every issue but if the opportunity comes up we're not going to censor it and we're going to put it out there you're, you're, you're not uh, you're not 
battleizing people's language. Correct. Which is, which is the first key. But you're also not like, you know, oh, look, we're adopting a punky, edgy attitude to be punky and edgy. You're just being, hey, this is what people are saying. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it's, it's, it's the way that I talk for, for better or for worse. My, my language is salty at times. Uh, it's the way that a lot of brewers uh, talk and, and words that they use. So we're, we're going to use them in, in, in print. There you go. All right. Uh, when did you first discover good beer? So, officially, my twenty-first birthday. <laughs> well, no, and 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 this is true actually. Uh, when I turned twenty-one, there's a brew pub in my uh, in the town where I went to college in South Orange, New Jersey. I went to Seton Hall University, and there's a brew pub in town called Gaslight. And on the afternoon of my 21st, when classes let out, I made this weird conscious decision that I was going to walk down to the brew pub, I was going to sit down and order a beer. And I did, and I ordered an IPA because it's apparently what you did back in 2001. And I choked it down. <laughs> I, I really don't know if it was not great or if my uh, palate was just so raw to it. I'm going to guess that it was my palate being really raw to it. And the bartender, uh, Jeff Levine, who's actually a friend now, uh, basically laughed as I choked this beer down. But not to be deterred, I ordered another one, goddammit, and choked that one down too, and then paid for my two beers and walked out into the daylight, <laughs> kind of blinking against the sun uh, in January. And um, yeah, from that point on, uh, I, I was a regular gaslight. And I learned to uh, appreciate good beer there. Uh, I was also, when I was in college, a reporter for the Times. And so I got to travel around quite a bit. And I realized that drinking at a local brew pub or a brewery was a lot better than going to the Applebee's in the lobby mm -hmm. of the Holiday Inn Express that I was staying at for work. And that I also got better stories because you got to hang out with the locals and you got to talk to the people and find out what was going on. So my appreciation through beer really came through the journalism that I was doing at the time. And then eventually uh, I became, became you know, a, like a beer journalist, as, as, as it were. But um, yeah, I, it, it, basically from the time that I was 21, I decided that I wanted to drink better. Uh, the, the suitcase of Keystone Lights uh, had never done it for me anyway. Uh, and being fortunate enough to have a brew pub in town and seeing the process right in front of you is actually a pretty cool thing. Yep. Um, well, and see, and that's, that's funny because I think what you were just saying about going to the local restaurant or going to the local brew pub, uh, you know, got you a better connection into the stories that you're doing, a better connection to the locality that you're dealing with. I mean, that's right in there with that truism about, like, you know, look, if you really want to know people, you have to eat with people, you have to drink with people. Uh, so it's like, don't don't just go to the, the standard corporate fair that's going to be the same everywhere. You want to find that local thing. You know, go find the, the silly-ass diner that's been there since 1922 or something. And yeah, you want to do what locals do. And that's not to say that locals don't go to Applebee's or Ruby Tuesdays or any of the others, because they certainly do. That's how those places stay in business. Yeah, but they're not unique to that. They're not. No, they're, they're, they're sort of cookie cutter uh, in a way. And, you know, the riblets that you get in Southern California are the same riblets that you get in Montclair, New Jersey, the same ones that you get in Indianapolis, Indiana. And so, um, yeah, I, 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 I from a very... From the time that I turned 21, and probably even before that, uh, I really did appreciate the opportunity to drink local and to know that my money was going to support local businesses. That's always been sort of you know big for me. It's one of the reasons you know I like coming to this brewery here in in Jersey City. Is I know Brian. I get to give him my money for mm -hmm. beer, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, well, and this is 
we've debated a lot on the podcast about like all the crappier buyouts and all that stuff that's happening. Like, yeah, you know, do you still support them? Do you not? And I'm very firmly in the camp of uh, no, because I'd rather my money go to people I know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's a, and it's a tough thing, and it's getting yeah. it's getting harder and harder because you know if we're if we're going to look at let's say AB InBev as the enemy, and we don't want money going to them. When you go to some other breweries, you don't know who their investors are. You don't actually know who the corporate parents are. It's a far cry from the days of uh, Ken Grossman founding uh, Sierra Nevada, mm-hmm. and you knew that the money was going to him and Paul. Yep. You know because they were the owners. Um, they had investors too back then, and you don't necessarily know who those investors are. And it's, I don't know. I I, I feel like when we're looking at a very large global brewer as the enemy, but we're not giving the same credence to some of this uh, investment uh, venture capital money that's coming in or some of these investment firms that are coming in. I mean, those guys exist to make money as well. Yeah, the the big old equity companies. Yeah. And so, you know, so many of these breweries are not necessarily mom and pop. And so I I go by, does the beer taste good? And I've become hugely unpopular in certain circles, but there are some, we'll call them craft breweries that I've gone to that make really terrible beer. And it's clearly infected. They know it's infected, but they have to sell it anyway to make money, even though it's going to hurt their business in the long run. I would rather not drink a huge old glass of diacetyl or whatever else is in the uh, in the beer. I would rather have a can of Budweiser because I know what Budweiser is going to taste like. If somebody said, you have to have a beer right now, and it can either be this diacetyl bomb from this small little brewery, or it can be this you know, clean, well-made lager that doesn't taste like much, but it's still clean and well-made, I would choose that. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something where a lot of the craft beer purists like start to scream about, but why would you go to Budweiser? And it's like, well, why would you drink diacetyl? That's a fair point. But uh, yeah, and you're, and you're right about the investors being, you know, sort of an unknown quantity. I guess I'm still very much in the camp of like, I know the bad that these people do, right? And they, right. Do, and they do do a lot of things I think are questionable. And that I find objectionable, and so therefore I try to, I try my best not to give them the name of my money. So, and, and 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 I think that that's absolutely a fair point. And and for right now, they're not missing you. No, not at all. And that's and that's the thing. And yeah, as, I, I, as, I think me not giving ABI any money means that Carlos Brito gets one less peanut in his peanut bowl. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe a half a peanut. Like a half a peanut yeah. <laughs> Sort of, uh, you know, whatever. the skins are off. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. Well, but it, I mean, it is the thing. Um, all right. So now this is normally the question I ask of beer brewers, so I'm going to kind of morph around a little bit because I love this question so much. So as a beer drinker, omitting the word balance, what is it that you're looking for in a glass of beer? I, I, I just want to address balance for, for, for a second, though, only because... When people say, oh, there's a really nice balance between malt and hops, I hate the fact that people omit water and yeast in that as well. It's a four-way balance. If you want a perfectly balanced beer, you have to take in the four main ingredients of it. And so when somebody says to me, oh, there's a really nice balance between malt and hops, I'm like, fuck you. Where, like, what? Tell me about the yeast. Tell me about the water. How does that play into this whole thing? Because it, it plays a huge part of it as well. Um, so anyway, that's, that, that, that's a whole thing. What do I look for in a glass of beer? Um, 
I want something that at the first sip, my eyebrow raises a little bit. In the back of my brain, my primitive brain goes, beer good. And then I go back to talking to the people that I'm talking to and having a good time. And I don't have to make a big production about it every time. I just want something that tastes good. I want, you know, and it doesn't have to be a super cloudy IPA. It doesn't have to be a super clear IPA. It doesn't have to be a, you know, some like weird bullshit concoction of, you know, black coal aged with elderberries and Cabernet barrels or like whatever the hell, you know, people are doing these days. If, if it makes me happy in my primitive brain, that's all I want. Uh, I drink a lot of beer for this job, a lot of beer for this job. And if I can have something where if I'm out of the bar and I can just order four pints of it over the course of the day and I don't have to think about it when I'm drinking it, but it just becomes like an extension of my arm, that's what I want. Uh, I don't want to have to stop and be intrigued every time. Uh, this is when I'm not working, you know, when I'm just out. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I, yeah. yeah it makes sense. I mean, but it also sounds like, uh, going back to the elderberries and Cabernet barrels, it doesn't sound like you, you'd be the sort of person lining up for the, the next greatest uh, white whale or release. I don't stand in line for beer. Uh, and I don't say that as the editor of the magazine. Um, you know, I, I'm very fortunate that a lot of people are very kind and send us beer for reviews and everything. Um, I don't say it that way. I don't stand in line for anything. Uh, I don't. I don't like lines. I don't like waiting. Uh, it's very much my Jerseyness coming out kind of thing. If uh, like, and, and I'm sure it drives my wife crazy because like, if we go to a restaurant and we have a 7:30 reservation, and they're saying, "Oh, well, it's going to be you know another 45 minutes," I'm like, "Screw you! I'm going someplace else." I don't care how good the thing. I don't wait. I don't. I don't like waiting. I don't. Um, that said, I think the people who do stand in line for beer. Um, I mean, I think they need to get a hobby. I think they need to like get out and see the world a little bit more. But there's also this kind of cool camaraderie that comes, you know, from that. And I've talked to people who have made like best friends in line. And you know, I guess they were both alone in their parents' basement at some point, and now they're sort of alone together because they travel around quite a bit. Um, but people find uh, I'm gonna get so much hate mail. Uh, <laughs> but people find like-minded people in the same way that I went to brew pubs to find interesting people and to talk to people and to have conversations the people who wait in line for the next white whale share a lot in common and I don't knock them for that it's just not it's like I, I'm not going to be in line with them it's not your bag it's not my bag at all no. this riff on Saturday Night, Live, Saturday Night Live's William Shatner has been brought to you by beer <laughs> And, uh, speaking of which, real Get quick, a life. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah. Well, and speaking of beer, we should uh, we should make a note that uh, we're we both, empty. Well, we're empty now, but we've both been sitting here drinking the uh, Mod Cup of Soul. I think it is, right? Yeah. Which is uh, uh, these guys' uh, coffee beer. Yeah. Like a, a breakfast stout that's actually like a breakfast stout at four point eight percent. I think it was nice, uh, nice coffee thing that's not overly acidic, not overly roasty, but it's coffee. Yeah, uh, balanced. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, it, it, uh, local local coffee roaster here in Jersey City. Um, yeah, I really I, I dig this beer, uh, and in about twenty minutes you will start to get that little jolt of caffeine through your bones, which is which is really quite, quite nice as well. Um, That's good. Yeah, I, I, I'm being a my daytime occupation is a computer programmer, which basically means I run on caffeine. So. Uh, years ago, when I uh, years ago when I took a job, they uh, went to go make me do a, uh, a urine test for drug uh, drug use, 
And I just looked at the nurse and said, the only thing you're going to find in my blood is not even, or in my urine is not even urine. You're going to find an equal mix of caffeine and ethanol. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's all that It's the my other system. kind of Colombian blend that's in my bloodstream right now, in my urine stream right now. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so now, uh, thinking, uh, thinking about some of the other things that we've talked about while we, uh, while we were walking, um, I know you said that, uh, like, your first beer of the day that you were trying to order was a, a, a Gansett Lager. Yeah. Yeah, and so uh, Narragansett, for those of you who don't uh, live somewhere in the Northeast. Uh, and you were complaining about uh, cleanliness. Yeah. Now, obviously, you must travel around. Now, how big of a problem do you think this is? I think it's a big problem. I think a lot of people... So, I, I, I guess... Uh, I don't know if we talked about this. Uh, before we started recording, I, I was at another bar, and I was served a filthy glass of beer. And uh, that uh, there's carbonation sticking to the inside of the glass, uh, like almost impenetrable to see the liquid on the inside. That's how dirty this glass was. And I, they were, the, the folks were talking about, oh, how often they clean their lines behind the bar. And I said, well, hey, if you guys actually care about cleanliness, you should know that this glass is kind of dirty. Um, again, super popular whenever I travel. Uh, people really love me uh, when I show up at places. Um, but I think that there is a lot of focus about uh, what's in the glass. And people are talking about, oh, we're using this new hopper. Oh, it's barrel aged. Or, hey, can you taste the bread? Or, you know, it's this wild beer, things like that. And there's so many things that beer touches before it gets to the glass. And it also touches the glass before it touches your lips. Um, that we need to be looking at the whole process. Uh, the thing that I love about going to the Craft Brewers Conference every year, and that's the like inside the industry uh, uh, conference that's going to be in Philly this year, uh, Paul Gatza, the director of the Brewers Association, gets on stage and he says, if you're not making quality beer, if you're not caring about your beer, get the f*** out of the room. And I love that. And every year there are like young brewers and some folks, uh, even some, some stalwarts in the industry, who kind of either laugh it off or shrug it off. And... If your beer is not being presented in a good way, if you're a bar that's serving good beer in a shitty way, if you just don't necessarily care, if all you care about is the money and the selling a, a, a Gansett lager for $6.50 a pint and you don't care how it's getting to the customer, leave the industry. Like, do us a favor because if you don't get your act together now, you will be out of business in a few years uh, or sooner. Because there are people who genuinely care about good beer. And I see it all the time. And I've become, I've really become like that angry old guy at 36 who like sends soup back. And I, and, and, and I, and I, and I don't want to be, but if I'm going to have the negative calories or, or, you know, if I'm just going to be drinking these empty calories that are coming into my body and enjoying the hell out of it, I want to enjoy the whole experience. Like I really do. And I, I just don't have patience for it anymore. If, if you want to get on the craft beer train, if you want to be driving this whole thing, do it the right way. Mm -hmm. And we're not back in the 70s. It's not a bar from even the mid-1980s where you know it's one size fits all. You really have to care about your beer program if you're going to have it. So, yeah, that's... Uh, well, that's good. Yeah. But, uh, no, I mean... Did I answer your question or did I get off on like a weird tangent? No, you answered my question. Okay. That's good. Because I had two thoughts, one of which was uh, one you totally missed, and everybody on the podcast totally missed. I was laughing my ass off at one point as John's talking about being very popular and being a cranky old man. You know, the owner is standing behind him just nodding. Yeah, oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Yes, he is. 
my God. But it's why I like coming here, though. I mean, Brian is a brewer who is doing things right. You know, he's been open for less than a year now. It's the first brewery in Jersey City uh, since Prohibition. And I come down here quite a bit. And I like coming down here because every time I come down, he's making improvements on stuff. Like, the beer is solid. Like, it's like we just enjoyed this beer that we had. It's solid beer, but he's always getting better. And he's light years better than when he first opens. And he knows that. And he's trying to be better from there. I know, is he still standing behind me and going from there? But I think that that's important. We're getting enthusiastic nods of agreement. Yes, I am improving. Thank you. No, but I go to a lot of breweries where places have been open for two, three, four years, and they're still using one house yeast strain. So, hey, my Hefeweizen tastes exactly like my Amber Ale, tastes exactly like my Stout. And it's Mm -hmm. like... Well, you, Why? Like, I mean, you, you can do that if you're planning appropriately, but yeah, if you're trying to go one yeast strain for a half and everything right. else, no, don't do that. But also just, I'll walk into breweries and you don't see proper cleaning techniques in mm-hmm. place, or you don't see, or you walk into a brewery and you're getting a dirty glass, or you're getting somebody who just doesn't know... Um, or who's not learning. Like, I love walking into breweries and seeing people train for Cicerone or seeing copies of my magazine or Beer Advocate or any of the other Zymergy that are out there that are dog-eared and that the bartenders are going through to, like, learn more about beer or seeing dog-eared copies of your books or my book or Ray Daniels or Randy Mosher, especially Randy Mosher, where people are trying to learn. I think that there's a lot of people who get into it and it's like, hey, we're open, we make beer, bring on the money. And those are the guys that I think Paul Gatz is talking about every year. And those are the guys that I am also trying to talk to as an angry old guy now saying, be better. Be Mm -hmm. better for all of us, but be better for you. Mm -hmm. Like go to sleep at night worrying about every aspect of your business like you're going to, but at least know that you're doing everything you can to put a proper beer in somebody's mouth. Well, and my other thought yeah. about the dirty glass thing, yeah. I think it just needs a rebranding effort. You know? And here's, here's what I think the rebranding needs to be. We are now presenting you New England IPA and proper hazy glassware. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, the, it's those pre-frosted glasses. Oh, yeah, let's totally do that. Or completely opaque black glasses so that you don't have to look at it. I would get down on that as well. Um, let's bring back the earthen stoneware mugs there for are. New England IPAs. Everybody's, everybody's got crockware in front of them now. Yeah. Let's I, would, I would love for every New England IPA to come with a knife and fork just stuck right in the glass. I think that that would be fun. Um, that's what we should have done for April Fool's this year. Uh, <laughs> Every brewery in Portland, Maine is now serving their IPA with a knife and fork. Uh, now I think I've just got to hate my life. <laughs> and you've been listening to the last podcast. Uh, yeah. We've just been canceled. Oh, oh no, no, no. We, we have yeah. contractual obligations for at least a few more of these, yeah. so yikes. Here's Hall just leaving a, just another <laughs> podcast in his wake. Just, <laughs> exactly. yeah, this is why I don't get invited to nice places anymore. Well, you do live in Jersey City. I mean, come on. <laughs> I like Jersey City. Come on down and see for yourself. This is, yeah. All right. Yes. So now that we've made fun of Cleanliness and we've made fun of uh, New England IPAs. And Jersey City. And Jersey yeah. City. Uh, what are you talked earlier? Like you like that beer that kind of tickles the primitive part of your brain and then lets you kind of go. Yeah. But when you're, but when you're actively engaged in the whole beer thing, like you know, when you're worrying about the magazine, worrying about you know professional beery type things, 
what are some of the flavors that really intrigue you, like make you go, yeah, that really do hit that primitive part of the brain? I'm getting more into, so there's a lot of like these uh, Mexican chocolate stouts that are out there these days where you're getting a little bit of heat, you're getting a little yeah, bit a little of sweet, a little, little savory, a little, yeah. I love those beers. Like that's sort of one of my guilty pleasures. Uh, Copper Kettle out uh, in the Denver area makes one that just knocks my socks off every time I try it. Um, you know, and then there's just, there, there's something very... Um, that I still love. I, I, I do love stouts and porters and some of the more roasty beers uh, that are out there. I, it, it's sort of, I, I, I do love a good pale ale. I do love a good, um, you know, IPA. I love, you know, Belgian beers, uh, despite what Jeff Allworth might tell you. Um, and uh, that's, if, I don't know if Jeff listens to your podcast, but you, you'll get a letter about that. <laughs> um, but but I, I just, I love the basic beers, mm -hmm. um, the simple beers. I, if, if we're not going to have like crazy whacked out ingredients in it, I just love something that hits the old school styles. Uh, because I really feel that that's something that we're losing these days. Um, you walk into a brewery and they'll say, uh, hey, try our peanut butter hazelnut chocolate stout. It's like, that's cool. Do you have like a regular sound? Like, no, we don't have that. And it's like, well, what's your base beer? We don't have a base beer. It's peanut butter, hazelnut, chocolate, porter, stout. You know, and it's, I, I, I feel like we're missing the building blocks a little bit. So I look for those building blocks. I look for the base. I look for a really nice. Um, I love cream ales, mm -hmm. for example, like like uh, Genesee Cream, Jenny Cream, right. uh, is what I drink uh, every summer holiday. I buy a thirty pack of it uh, every summer holiday. I have a cooler in my car for when like we're driving around. My wife drives around to all the different places. I sit in the passenger seat. Uh, we go to a new party, and I'm like that guy in the flip flops and the you know the Cuban shirt in the backyard, like popping beers and uh, drinking straight from the can. Um, I just I love the basics. I love the classics. You know, it's again I'm sounding like the old man. I'm like kids music today kind of thing. You know, I don't understand the Jay Z. Um, you know, where's my credence? Yeah, um, yeah, it's that kind of thing. It's uh, credence and Jay Z don't really. I should have said like Run DMC or something, but yeah. Anyway, it's okay. It actually, it actually further cements the old white guy. <laughs> yeah, thanks very much. Yeah. As much as I, I mean, I and I really love CCR. So, um, well, and you know, one of the things I, I'm still waiting on is I'm still waiting on uh, the revival of the American brown ale. Oh, wouldn't that be great? Yeah. Or like a simple amber. Yeah. Like it's, uh, Brian makes a, a, a California common here at the light rail that, uh, that I drink the hell out of uh, most of the time. It's just a really nice beer. Mm -hmm. Easy drinking. Just, you know, and it's again, it's just one of these like simple, harkens back to the olden, uh, olden days as it were, you know, all the way back to, you know, 76 and 67 when, when Fritz saved Anchor. Um, and it's nice. Mm -hmm. And it's fine. Like, and then when I get home and I go to work and I'm drinking the pineapple tangerine IPAs or I'm drinking the elderberry gozas or whatever. Those are nice too, but I'm, I'm not the type of person who's going to have a six pack of that in my fridge and drink a six pack of that. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to recommend it. You know, if I see it out and I'm in the mood for it, that's great. But yeah, brown ale. Yeah. Give me a brown ale. Yeah. Well, and, and particularly I think with like, you know, some of the things that we're talking about, like the elderberries and, and I have a feeling that we're either sponsored by the elderberry commission or we're doing harm to the elderberry harvest right now. But, you know, elderberry or other flavors, one of the things I think a lot of people are missing out on is that they do all these stouts and do stouts as these flavored things. Mm -hmm. But browns provide a equally wonderful playground for flavors as well. Oh, right? because, yeah. I mean, that's what, that's what I, in the podcast, Denny is the the scientifically minded practical one I'm the wacky one 
And to me, Brown is perfect because Brown requires execution skills. It requires making a decent beer, and then it provides you just such a wonderful palate to play on. Right? Yeah. So that's what I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for Brown to come back. All right. You should. Yes. Here we go. All right. Last two questions. All right. What are uh, your other beer thoughts that you think are important for people to know? Other beer thoughts that people should know. Yeah, is there anything else that you're harking that people should understand? It's a, it's a business. First and foremost, it is a business. It's, it's a business that a lot of people are passionate about, but when everybody starts complaining about who's buying who or sellouts or things like that, remember that these people have to pay employees, uh, save for retirement, uh, and that they are growing a business in the best way that they know how. And I know very few other industries, you know, coffee, gas, um, where you buy your paper towels and who makes your paper towels that people are as passionate about as beer. I think it's awesome that the passion is there, but when somebody makes a decision to sell to somebody else or to cash out at retirement or something like that, before we start throwing vitriol around, remember that these people have a business and they have to think about their employees and the longevity of the company that they built. And if they lose you as a customer, that's unfortunate, but there are going to be other customers for them down the line. Um, you know, it's uh, uh, and it sounds weird because I don't have a stake in any brewery. I don't have anything like that, uh, and I just I feel like that that gets missed quite a bit, where people take it so personally, uh, and that's a and that's a cool thing. It's a good thing to take it personally, but don't always you know we don't always need the the jilted lover act afterwards. Well, it's that it's one of those aspects of uh, nerdy obsession, right? Yeah, and, and nerdy obsession takes a uh, you know that becomes wrapped up in a personal identity. Uh, yada yada yada. Next thing you know, hurt feelings everywhere. Right. Um, and uh, this just in on the rumor mill. Uh, the rumor mill is currently saying that All About Beer magazine is in talks to be acquired by Anheuser Busch. <laughs> <laughs> no comments. Um, but I, I will say that our next cover feature is all about the awesomeness of Beechwood aging uh, and uh, ways to properly care for your Clydesdale. And, and it has nothing to do with the rumors that are out there. And, and, um, and the best uh, the best thongs to wear on a Brazilian beach, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I just got a bad image in my head. That's, yeah, I was going to say, you know, our readership, I don't know if that's, yeah. All right. So, we've uh, spent a little bit of time talking. That isn't true, by the way. We're not being acquired by Anheuser-Busch. <laughs> I just need to point that out because I will get letters from people being like, you know, <laughs> The great Satan's taking you over, and it's like, no, we're we're cool, man. It's we're, yeah, we're, we're cool. They're not the great Satan. They just have a big bank account. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. So we spent the past little bit here talking about beer. Let's talk about uh, non-beer. We always close our podcast with uh, things other than beer. The uh, the other things that we're obsessed with in life. Yeah. So, what is something non-beer that you are obsessed with? God, I hate this question because I always blank because, like, work is life and life is work. Um, it sounds it, it, it's, it sounds kind of cliched. Um, if I'm not working or drinking beer or hanging out, like, I actually just love being with family. Uh, and I sound like a politician who's resigning in disgrace every time that I say that. I'm going to um, spend more time with my family. Yeah, no, it's... Um, I... Work and, and beer are so wrapped up in each other, and, and I do it so much. Um, uh, I love naps. Mm -hmm. I love just taking naps. Uh, I love my dog, uh, and my wife, of course, but like, uh, you know, hanging out with the dog, uh, and just sort of, 
I, 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 it, it falls into just um, uh, the simple pleasures of cooking at home, or probably it's probably like my main hobby mm-hmm. of finding hard to manage recipes and trying to perfect them at home. Um, but I travel a lot for work, and so I really value the being at home aspect of my life, uh, whether that's. Uh, falling asleep to the masters while uh, uh, being on my couch at home with the dog falling asleep on top of me to uh, walking down to the local market and making stuff at home. This is really boring. Like nobody, like I'm, I'm like outside of work, uh, I am, uh, you know, after David Bowie died, just as a quick aside, uh, this Onion headline came up again where uh, it was an Onion headline that said, David Bowie says to a mom, uh, how about lasagna tonight? Um, and it was just like sort of like here's this like rock star who's out, and I'm certainly not David Bowie, but like this rock star who's out in the world, very famous, very like doing a lot of stuff, and his home life is like very normal and kind of boring. Um, that's kind of yeah. I don't I don't do museums. I don't do a lot of like. I, I don't. No, no, I, no, clearly, no. anybody who's met me knows that like exercise is not my thing. Um, so yeah, I stay at home and nap and I cook, and that's so, yeah. What, what's the recipe that you're proudest of that you cook? Oh man, that's, having, a, that's a fun question. He's having to scratch his chest and I, thinking. I, <laughs> the primal, the primal scratching of my chest. Um, no, I'm a, I, I'm a big fan. I'm doing a lot of Asian dishes these days, so I'm doing a lot of. Um, uh, like five uh, five spice pork, um, slow roasted. Um, uh, I'm kind of proud of those. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of like soups and stews. So uh, I have a fun jambalaya recipe that I use quite a bit. Um, and I, I'm on this never ending quest until I actually end it to recreate my grandmother's uh, cabbage soup. Uh, my grandmother made this like fantastic cabbage soup when I was growing up. Uh, my dad remembers it, and you know all of my aunts and uncles remember it. Uh, and she never left it behind after she after she died. Um, and so I'm desperately trying to recreate it, and I can't dial it in. And I'm trying every combination of ingredients. So if anybody has a cabbage soup recipe that's laying around in their house, uh, mail it to me, please, and I'll try it. And if it works out, I'll I'll send you a case of beer. Um, there we go. Hey, look at that. Uh, yeah. Beer for cabbage. There it is. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, but it does sound like what we'll have to do with the podcast is we're going to have to include a link to uh, one of your recipes, maybe the cabbage soup recipe, so uh, can, absolutely. can take a look at it and go, uh, oh, that's what your problem is. You're missing the... Exactly. exactly. <laughs> You're missing the elderberries. Um, wh- why is there no Britannomyces in your grandmother's cabbage soup? Yeah, there you go. that's what it is. All right. Well, there we go, guys. This has been uh, uh, John Hall. John uh, is, again, the chief editor, right? Of sure, editor, Here. yeah. Editor-in-chief, editor in terms of making words actually appear on paper. Right. Uh, for All About Beer, uh, you can subscribe to All, Beer, All About Beer at allaboutbeer.com. Yes, please. Yeah, yeah. And really, uh, super quick, just leave it on this. Yeah. One reason why people should subscribe to the magazine in a digital age. We celebrate the culture of beer. And it is still a tangible thing. You hold beer in your hand, in your glass. Uh, there's something really nice still about the printed paper medium that's out there. And we feel that beer sort of comes to life a little bit better on the page. Uh, that's not to say digital isn't great, but um, if you have a beer on the bar, this is something nice to flip through uh, without that 
foam glare coming off and radiating off of your eyes. It's uh, you know fewer radio waves coming through your brain with Let, print. Less radio waves, more beer. Yes. All Thanks right. so much. Hey, thank you, man. This is fun. Good. Wow, what a guy. This man has been around, he's seen it all, he knows all the people, and he has some real strong opinions, and I have to admit that uh, a lot of them are right on as far as I'm concerned. Uh, so what was it like having a beer with John? Oh, it was great. Uh, I will say that uh, hopefully our bleep button worked pretty well because uh, John is very aggressively New Jersey. Uh, with his language and even for me i was like wow okay let's go let's roll with this but uh yeah and john certainly is a, a lot of people involved in the beer industry try to be very uh politic about their opinions and being kind of careful about what they say and not wanting to offend other people john's certainly not that guy and yeah i don't necessarily agree with all of his opinions but their opinions and therefore they have a reason to be so, but I, I had a great time sitting down with them. It was a great chat and I really wish I hadn't had to run out of there to go to the airport to come back home because there was so much more, I think that we could have talked about and covered. Yeah. Right. Right. So, okay. Well, there's our interview for the week. Mr. John Hall from all about beer magazine. Hope you guys enjoyed it as much as we did. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, it'll be time for questions and answers. Ask Denny and Drew. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Okay, I guess that's about enough of the ukulele for this one. Wait, week. wait, so wait. I want more okay, ukulele. More ukulele. More ukulele. I'm sure our listeners want more ukulele, too. <laughs> if you want more ukulele, let Denny know. You were saying? Uh, yeah, please don't. Okay, so it's time for Ask Denny and Drew, the part of the program where we try and see if we can come up with somewhat credible answers to some of your questions. Our first question today comes from Graham Duffy uh, via Facebook says, uh, can you cover best practice for storage, uh, e.g. hops, washed yeast, and grain, and most importantly, how to know when they're bollocksed and not to use? Thanks. All right, well, one, hey, bollocksed, great. Getting the British terms in here. All right, uh, so yeah, best practices for storage. Fairly straightforward, at least to my mind. I have a system that I've used for ever and ever and a day. Grain, I always keep my grain under airtight storage. I have uh, Vittle vaults or the gamma seal lids, and I keep, I keep them in five-gallon buckets. I find that two five-gallon buckets is sufficient to hold a domestic sack of malt. And so that's where my base malts go. My specialty malts that I, that I hold on to, because I do basically have a homebrew store in my garage, is I throw those into the vacuum sealer. I vacuum seal them in, in just the vacuum bags and store those away in tubs. And so far, so good with no rats. So I'm very happy with that. And I've used malt that I've stored that way for two, three years old, and it's been really fresh. Now, how do you tell when it's good and when it's not good? Take some of the grain in your hand, uh, feel it. If it feels mushy, don't use it. That means it's basically gone uh, soft and stale. Uh, also, at the same time, if you've got some malt that you think may be on the border or you're worried about, 
pop some in your mouth. It's not going to kill you unless a mouse is peed on it. Uh, pop some in your mouth, give it a chew, see how it tastes. If it doesn't taste lively and fresh, like when you bite into it, it tastes like, you know, fresh grain, then you might want to consider not using it. Uh, hops, vacuum packed in the freezer. Uh, I keep them down at the bottom of my freezer and I actually stack ice packs on top of them and in the middle of the hops because the modern day frost free freezers like to defrost themselves. That's how they stay frost free. Uh, and that will raise the temperatures of the hops. So I use the ice packs in there actually to kind of keep everything stable and ice cold. And again, visual inspection, you want to make sure they still look nice, bright green. Every time I use hops, I go and I reseal them back into a vacuum bag and put them right back into the freezer as fast as I can. Uh, washed yeast. Uh, truthfully, I just, one, I don't normally even wash my yeast. I usually will store it under wort and I only keep it around for a week or two. Uh, otherwise, I check that it's okay by, uh, you know, essentially visual inspection. And I will almost always, if I'm questionable about it, I will go ahead and I'll throw it in a starter and actually use the starter wort to kind of uh, reinvigorate the yeast before I actually go into my main beer. So those are my tips. What about you, Denny? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much the same. Hops definitely uh, vacuum sealed in the freezer. Uh, I haven't gone as far as putting ice packs in with them. That's an interesting concept. Uh, the grain, I basically keep uh, in the bag that it came in, even open bags. But all of those go into a tightly sealed, uh, large Rubbermaid storage container. I can get two or three bags of grain into one of those things. Uh, like Drew, I do not wash my yeast. I store it under leftover beer in uh, half-gallon plastic containers with snap-on lids that I keep in, in the fridge. I prefer those to glass because they can't explode. Remember, even in the refrigerator, yeast will keep slowly working away and fermenting. And if you put it in a glass jar with uh, the lid tightly screwed on, you have a good chance of ending up with shards of glass stuck in your refrigerator. So don't do that. Uh, how to tell if it's still good? Yeah. Chew the grain. If it, if it crunches as opposed to mushes, if it still tastes fresh, it's still good. You can still use it. Hops shouldn't smell cheesy, shouldn't smell like old feet, shouldn't be brown unless that's the way they came originally, in which case you may not want to use them at all. Okay, next question comes via email from Matt Trumbo, who has a question about filling bottles. My question is in regard to bottling from the keg without a beer gun. I made myself a counter-pressure filler I saw online using a broken racking cane that I shove into my picnic tap and a rubber stopper that fits into a bottle. What do you suggest is the best way to purge your bottles with CO2 before filling with beer without a beer gun? I was thinking of CO2 cartridges in a portable dispenser somehow instead of using my kegerator CO2 tank, but was wondering if you have any suggestions. Well, I, I do a lot the same thing that, that you do there, Matt. Um, I use a one-hole stopper. It's like a number two, two and a half, whatever fits into a bottle. And instead of putting a racking cane down through it, I just use a piece of flexible vinyl tubing that's long enough to go to the bottom of the bottle and stick out the top. Uh, I stick the end coming out the top into uh, my picnic tap. 
I uh, use screw-on flare fittings for my CO2 connectors uh, coming off of my tank. So basically, I can just unscrew one of those quick disconnects, stick the hose into the bottle, turn on the tank for a couple seconds, and purge the bottle like that. After that, I seat that stopper firmly in the top of the bottle. I, uh, you know, the other end is attached to my picnic tap. I open the tap and beer starts flowing into the bottle. When it gets maybe about a third of the way full, the pressure will build up inside the bottle and stop the flow of beer into it. At that point, you can very slightly crack that stopper with your thumb, which controls the flow of beer into the bottle. It'll start flowing again slowly. It's a great way to prevent foaming as the bottle fills up. So once the bottle is full, you close the tap, you remove the stopper, and you cap the bottle as quickly as possible. Uh, that's my cheap and easy bottle filler method. Uh, what do you do, Drew? What's a bottle? <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I, ha I have to admit that I don't do it very often. Oh, and I, I did want to say that uh, Matt's idea of using a portable dispenser and CO2 cartridges would work also, but it's... Uh, for me, that's like a, another step, and I'm right there by my CO2 tank, so if I can just unscrew the quick disconnect, that will work fine. Uh, I think the last bottle of yours I saw was when you were making the champagne beer, and I know that that wasn't bottled from a No, those are, those are definitely bottle conditioned, and yeah, truthfully, I I don't bottle hardly at all, and when I do, I, I do have a beer gun. Uh, I'm far more prone to go fill a, a growler or a plastic uh, two-liter bottle and put a carbonator cap on it and go, here, I brought you beer, uh, than I am to ever do a bottle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's the same thing for me, too. I, I just hate bottling in any form for some reason. Well, but, uh, Matt, I would say that basically you have a pretty good system. Yeah, and I, and I do want to throw one piece of caution out there because I know there are some people who – I've seen the suggestion online. Oh, well, if you want to purge your bottles with CO2 and you don't want to, you know, go through this hassle with the tanks and all that. I've seen some people talk about, Hey, you know, go set up your bottles in a row, you know, like in a case box and use the CO2 tank to purge the bottles all the way around. And yeah, you know, let them sit there with like foil over the top of them. Cause the idea is CO2 is heavier than O2. So it won't mix. Yeah. Okay. Um, those are those are people who've never yeah, heard of Henry's but, uh, Law of Gas. Regardless, yeah, you know, that's probably better than nothing. The other one I've also heard people doing is, oh, hey, I go take a chunk of dry ice and toss dry ice into the bottles. That's a bad idea. Oh, for God's yeah. sake, don't that's do that. That's a bad idea. <laughs> don't uh, not, do that. Not just because, uh, you know, hey, there's the big worry about what happens if you don't get the CO2 completely, or sorry. Not only is there the big worry about what would happen if the dry ice didn't melt all the way before you put the cap on, but there's also just the fact that, you know, dry ice is not exactly manufactured in the cleanest of ways. So let's not do that with our beer. Yeah. All right. Yeah. From, from my showbiz background, I can tell you that uh, we used to use a lot of dry ice for fog machines and stuff like that. And there would be like oil and metal shavings and stuff like that in there. So just yep. forget that idea completely. Yep. All right. This Drew, one comes from next uh, one. Pal uh, uh. All right, this one comes from Paul Galliardi uh, from Facebook. And he says, Denny, Drew, love the site and the podcast. I'm making my way through them as a late adopter. Remember, the only time it's ever too late is the time when you don't. So thank you. All right, I have a follow-up question from the Q&A show from March. 
One question was about fermenting in corny kegs, and both of you were a bit down on it. And Drew, you specifically mentioned the use of 10-gallon kegs as superior to 5 gallons. As you both do, I also brew with a Zymatic to an half gallon batch system. I have routinely fermented in my 5-gallon corny. I really like the fact that the wort is in the same vessel that has been at near boiling temperatures for 60 to 90 minutes for sanitation purposes, and I love the CO2 transfers. I haven't had any problems with blow-off in this configuration. In this setting where I'm fermenting 2.5 gallon batches in a 5-gallon keg, would you still prefer the 10-gallon over a 5-gallon? I'm wondering whether it's the relationship of the batch size to the keg capacity that is the issue, or is there a proportionality of the 5-gallon kegs that you simply don't like? Thank you both so much for the super podcast, entertaining format, organization, and great info. See, people, that's how you get your question answered. Whoa, that's right. All right. Uh, and I, uh, Paul, the answer here is for two and a half gallon batches. No, a five gallon corny keg is perfectly fine. What I don't like with a five gallon corny as opposed to a 10 gallon corny when I'm doing uh, larger batches, you have the whole issue of five gallons in a five gallon uh, container means that you're going to have an awful lot of spillage from active fermentation. Now, that just doesn't mean yeast. It also means the beer that's being carried around by the yeast as well. Uh, so that seems sort of wasteful to me in the first point. Second point is that when you're actually that full, then you have a very tall column of liquid that's very narrow. And all the stuff that came out of uh, the 1920s in Australia with the Nathan fermenters that now morphed into the CCV tanks, there's a lot of sort of evidence about certain geometries being more beneficial to yeast circulation. So that's the reason why I prefer the 10-gallon corny kegs for that 5-gallon batch size, or really actually I do 8 gallons in a 10-gallon corny. But for a 2.5-gallon batch, I think you're, you'll be fine in a 5-gallon keg. Uh, I, I don't have any problems with it, and I've totally done it with my Pico Brew as well, although I will admit that I still kind of get a little antsy about it. Uh, but that's just my own anxiety and weird issues. So in this case, no, it's totally it's totally the batch size to the to the volume of the of the keg and really about that that ratio when you're trying to go full up into a tall column that I don't like. Yeah, and I'll mention that you know there there are there have been concerns expressed about the geometry of a corny keg influencing the fermentation and ester production in the beer. Uh, I don't know how valid those concerns really are. I've never had a lot of trouble. Uh, so then basically I would agree with Drew. It's, it's down to batch size. All righty. Our last question today comes from our good buddy and frequent questioner, Evil Morty from over on the Bruise Brothers forum. Morty wants to know, can I use U.S. Hallertau in place of German Hallertau hops? Um, interesting question. And the answer is, yeah, maybe. Uh, a lot of it is going to depend on the exact U.S. Haller Tower hops that you have, where they were grown, who grew them, uh, how they were treated. Uh, I would say, in general, you can get pretty darn close by doing that. Uh, interestingly enough, I asked this question of uh, Ted Hossotter, who is a Grandmaster BJCP judge, and runs a wonderful company called Hop Heaven. I asked Ted about uh, about using U.S. Haller Tower as a sub for German Haller Tower. His comment was, "Yeah, leave them in your garage for six months at fifty degrees, and you'll <laughs> never know the difference." Now, whether that was facetious or an actual tip, I don't know. 
but I have used both uh, U.S. Haller Tower and Tetnang in place of the German varieties, and I found them at, at least close enough. Uh, there's, I, I guess I would have to say there's nothing like the real thing, but if you can't get the real thing, then the U.S. varieties well, are... Well, and that's not always the so. case for every sort of hop out there, right? I mean, like... Oh, no. We know that... I mean, we know that Goldings and, and Fuggles and all those in particular taste very different from their UK counterparts. Uh, and uh, Ted, of course, I think is sarcastically referring to the idea that the, any of the hops that we're getting from Europe are going to be aged and not treated as wonderfully as American hops would be treated here, where they get like basically you know cold stored immediately and stay in cold storage as long as possible. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's also going to be one of those things where it's going to be a case case by case basis, a strain by strain basis as to whether or not you can do a substitution. Uh, I am not experienced enough with the the U.S. Halatau and the and the German Halatauer hops in a side by side comparison to be able to say, yes, this is a Drew Beecham approved substitution. Uh, but hey, what the hell, give it a try. If I had to generalize, I would say that the difference that I've found between them is that the German version can be a little bit more floral while the American version comes across as a little bit more fruity, but that's a generalization. You know how well those generally work. Okay. That's it for Q and a this week. I hope that uh, we were able to answer some of your questions, give you some decent info and at least not look too foolish while we were doing it. Now it's time for that part of the week where we talk about something other than beer and drew came up with a couple very cool things this week at least they're cool to me so uh if you don't know obviously i'm a big dog nut because yeah uh and one of my dogs is part corgi and i am absolutely sort of uh nuts about corgis i will squee like a wee little baby girl when i see a corgi and by the way i share this with lou bryson uh who was a guest on our show and so Recalling the glory days of the early internet when things like hamsterdance.com were huge and sold for lots and lots of money, somebody has put up a site called corgiorgy.com, which is just a odd, mind-blowing site that you have to spend at least a minute on to really fully appreciate. And yes, it does help if you really, really like corgis, but it really does remind me of the, the heady days of the hamsterdams. And uh, the song will work its way right into your head. And on the slightly more serious, but still no less mind-blowing uh, angle, uh, did you have something that you wanted to say? No, no, I was just thinking about the, those all those corgis dancing around. Yeah. All right. And then on the slightly more serious, as serious as the internet can be, uh, kind of angle, I ran across a Russian cake baker's Instagram uh, via another one of my websites that I read all the time. And it's for a woman named uh, Olga Naskova. And, oh my God, you have to take a look at these cakes that this woman is doing. They look <laughs> like jewels, like highly polished stones. They have this mirrored finish cake frosting that she's making. And it looks so perfect, so smooth, and so insane that it just kind of breaks my head. And she even has, she hasn't revealed the recipe that she's using to make her different glazes. And because it's not a fondant. And it's not quite a it's not quite a royal icing. It's something completely different, and it comes off with this mirror-like shine, and it's absolutely gorgeous. But uh, 
she has this one video showing her pouring the glaze over the top of one of these cakes uh, to make it in the smooth coating. It's so freaking mesmerizing that even though the video that I know is only 15 seconds long, I have sat there and watched it for a couple minutes just watching this just pour over like, I don't know, some sort of confectionery sex goodness. So there you go. Whoa. Corgis? I don't know about that. Oh, yeah. Corgis and confectionery yeah, sex goodness. So wow. those are those are my other than beers. Well, I got it. I got the quick tip this week, and uh, my quick tip is check your thermometers and calibrate them. Um, I had uh, gone through a string of uh, beers recently where I noticed that my runoff was kind of cloudier than usual, and my conversion efficiency had dropped from uh, usual, you know, mid to high nineties down into the uh, upper seventies, and during all these brews, I was busy doing other things, and I hadn't really had a chance to sit down and figure it out. And this week, when I was uh, brewing my back-to-back batches of German pills to check out Brew Tan B, uh, I figured, okay, I want everything to be right on, so I'll check my thermometer calibration. I, I For brewing, I use an old bimetal dial thermometer that I've had since the very first time I brewed. I really enjoy it because of the fact you can calibrate it, but that also means it can get knocked out of calibration. So I checked it against my NIST certified calibration thermometer and found out that my brewing thermometer had been reading about 15 degrees high. So all my mash temps and everything else were coming in about 15 degrees low. Uh, I corrected it. I ended up with beautiful crystal clear wort out of the Pilsners. My conversion efficiency shot back up to 97%. So... There's there's a tip for you. Every few brews, check your brewing thermometer against an accurate source and recalibrate it if necessary. Uh, maybe you've got a fancy thermopen, something like that, that doesn't need to be calibrated. Um, and, you know, I like to use a certified lab thermometer to calibrate mine against. If you don't have one of those... Yeah, you can use the boiling water, ice water method, and that can work okay. Although in the past, I have had thermometers that were not linear. So while they could show pretty well at the extremes, they could be way off in the middle. So I like to use a a calibrated scientific thermometer to calibrate my brewing thermometer at about 150 degrees or mash temp. See, and this is definitely one of those things you have to worry about with those uh, old-fashioned bimetal thermometers. Those things get so wacky with calibration so quickly if you're not if you're not on top of it. Uh, and it's also the reason why I finally just went and sprung for the thermopin, you know, because hey, why not? And digital readout so much easier. Yeah, no, I I agree that the older my eyes get and the more I squint at that uh, at that dial thermometer, the more attractive a thermopin. Well, and is. there are there are now cheaper alternatives to the thermopin, but the thermopin is still the king. Um, I will also say that there is an old maxim if, if you want to, if you want to talk about why you really should be doing this, that the only man who is truly sure of his temperature is the man with one thermometer. Yeah. I've heard that for sure. And I believe it. Yeah. So get, get yourself a, get yourself a lab grade thermometer. sounds like. Okay. And go for it. Yep. Yep. Either that or a thermopan if, if you got the bucks and probably a, a thermopan doesn't cost any more than a lab grade calibration thermometer. So it's time for the question of the week, and the question this week is, what do you think of Northeast IPA? 
are you a fan of the haze? Do you wonder why you have to chew a beer? Let us know what you think about Northeast IPAs. Have you brewed them? Do you like to drink them? Uh, and we will have some recipes and a link to my review of 10 different Northeast IPAs on the website for you to look at. Let freedom ring! <laughs> yeah. Okay, so it's recap time, Drew. All right, we talked about what's going on at HomebrewCon, a.k.a. the Wrath of DennyCon. We talked about CBC. We talked about the Smithsonian and what they're doing about craft beer. We've talked about the rise of the New England IPA. We talked about a Brett article that we think that you should read in. We even talked a little bit about John Hall and his All About Beer, the magazine for beer lovers everywhere. Uh, we answered your questions. Maybe. And I showed you how to figure out how to end up in somebody's governmental internet research databank with Russian cake sex goodness and corgi orgies. Uh, and Denny, of course, has also led you down the, uh, the path of, hey, check your thermometer. And that's what we did this week on Experimental Brewing. And we want to thank you for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Experimental Brew, on Facebook, and who knows where else. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics or recipes or experiments or even rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com or you can email each one of us individually. I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. So until next time... Remember to brew experimentally or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. <laughs> <laughs>